At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. Section 0 of Evolution Créatrice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Evolution Créatrice by Henri Bergson. Translated by Arthur Mitchell. Section 0. Translator's Note. In the writing of this English translation of Professor Bergson's most important work, I was helped by the friendly interest of Professor William James, to whom I owe the illumination of much that was dark to me, as well as the happy rendering of certain words and phrases for which an English equivalent was difficult to find. His sympathetic appreciation of Professor Bergson's thought is well known, and he has expressed his admiration for it in one of the chapters of A Pluralistic Universe. It was his intention had he lived to see the completion of this translation, himself to introduce it to English readers in a prefatory note. I wish to thank my friend Dr. George Clark Cox for many valuable suggestions. I have endeavoured to follow the text as closely as possible and at the same time to preserve the living union of diction and thought. Professor Bergson has himself carefully revised the whole work. We both of us wish to acknowledge the great assistance of Miss Millicent Murby, she has kindly studied the translation phrase by phrase, weighing each word, and her revision has resulted in many improvements. But above all, we must express our acknowledgement to Mr. H. Wilden Carr, the Honorary Secretary of the Aristotelian Society of London, and the writer of several studies of Evolution Créatrice. We asked him to be kind enough to revise the proofs of our work. He has done much more than revise them. They have come from his hands with his personal mark in many places. We cannot express all that the present work owes to him. Arthur Mitchell, Harvard University Introduction by Henri Bergson The history of the evolution of life, incomplete as it yet is, already reveals to us how the intellect has been formed, by an uninterrupted progress, along a line which ascends through the vertebrate series up to man. It shows us in the faculty of understanding an appendage of the faculty of acting, a more and more precise, more and more complex and supple adaptation of the consciousness of living beings to the conditions of existence that are made for them. Hence should result this consequence that our intellect, in the narrow sense of the word, is intended to secure the perfect fitting of our body to its environment, to represent the relations of external things among themselves, in short, to think matter such will indeed be one of the conclusions of the present essay we shall see that the human intellect feels at home among inanimate objects more especially among solids where our action finds its fulcrum and our industry its tools that our concepts have been formed on the model of solids that our logic is pre-eminently the logic of solids that consequently our intellect triumphs in geometry wherein is revealed the kinship of logical thought with unorganized matter and where the intellect has only to follow its natural movement after the lightest possible contact with experience in order to go from discovery to discovery 
sure that experience is following behind it and will justify it invariably but from this it must also follow that our thought in its purely logical form is incapable of presenting the true nature of life the full meaning of the evolutionary movement created by life in definite circumstances to act on definite things how can it embrace life of which it is only an emanation or an aspect deposited by the evolutionary movement in the course of its way how can it be applied to the evolutionary movement itself as well contend that the part is equal to the whole that the effect can reabsorb its cause or that the pebble left on the beach displays the form of the wave that brought it there in fact we do indeed feel that not one of the categories of our thought unity multiplicity mechanical causality intelligent finality etc applies exactly to the things of life who can say where individuality begins and ends whether the living being is one or many whether it is the cells which associate themselves into the organism or the organism which dissociates itself into cells in vain we force the living into this or that one of our moulds all the moulds crack they are too narrow above all too rigid for what we try to put into them our reasoning so sure of itself among things inert feels ill at ease on this new ground it would be difficult to cite a biological discovery due to pure reasoning and most often when experience has finally shown us how life goes to work to obtain a certain result we find its way of working is just that of which we should never have thought yet evolutionist philosophy does not hesitate to extend to the things of life the same methods of explanation which have succeeded in the case of unorganized matter it begins by showing us in the intellect a local effect of evolution a flame perhaps accidental which lights up the coming and going of living beings in the narrow passage open to their action and lo forgetting what it has just told us it makes of this lantern glimmering in a tunnel a sun which can illuminate the world boldly it proceeds with the powers of conceptual thought alone to the ideal reconstruction of all things even of life true it hurtles in its course against such formidable difficulties it sees its logic end in such strange contradictions that it very speedily renounces its first ambition it is no longer reality itself it says that it will reconstruct but only an imitation of the real or rather a symbolical image the essence of things escapes us and will escape us always we move among relations the absolute is not in our province we are brought to a stand before the unknowable but for the human intellect after too much pride this is really an excess of humility if the intellectual form of the living being has been gradually modeled on the reciprocal actions and reactions of certain bodies and their material environment how should it not reveal to us something of the very essence of which these bodies are made action cannot move in the unreal a mind born to speculate or to dream i admit might remain outside reality might deform or transform the real perhaps even create it as we create the figures of men and animals that our imagination cuts out of the passing cloud but an intellect bent upon the act to be performed and the reaction to follow feeling its object so as to get its mobile impression at every instant is an intellect that touches something of the absolute would the idea ever have occurred to us to doubt this absolute value of our knowledge if philosophy had not shown us what contradictions our speculation meets what deadlocks it ends in 
but these difficulties and contradictions all arise from trying to apply the usual forms of our thought to objects with which our industry has nothing to do and for which therefore our moulds are not made intellectual knowledge in so far as it relates to a certain aspect of inert matter ought on the contrary to give us a faithful imprint of it having been stereotyped on this particular object it becomes relative only if it claims such as it is to present to us life that is to say the maker of the stereotype plate must we then give up fathoming the depths of life must we keep to that mechanistic idea of it which the understanding will always give us an idea necessarily artificial and symbolical since it makes the total activity of life shrink to the form of a certain human activity which is only a partial and local manifestation of life a result or by-product of the vital process we should have to do so indeed if life had employed all the psychical potentialities it possesses in producing pure understandings that is to say in making geometricians but the line of evolution that ends in man is not the only one on other paths divergent from it other forms of consciousness have been developed which have not been able to free themselves from external constraints or to regain control over themselves as the human intellect has done but which none the less also express something that is immanent and essential in the evolutionary movement suppose these other forms of consciousness brought together and amalgamated with intellect would not the result be a consciousness as wide as life and such a consciousness turning around suddenly against the push of life which it feels behind would have a vision of life complete would it not even though the vision were fleeting it will be said that even so we do not transcend our intellect for it is still with our intellect and through our intellect that we see the other forms of consciousness and this would be right if we were pure intellects if there did not remain around our conceptual and logical thought a vague nebulosity made of the very substance out of which has been formed the luminous nucleus that we call the intellect therein reside certain powers that are complementary to the understanding powers of which we have only an indistinct feeling when we remain shut up in ourselves but which will become clear and distinct when they perceive themselves at work so to speak in the evolution of nature they will thus learn what sort of effort they must make to be intensified and expanded in the very direction of life this amounts to saying that theory of knowledge and theory of life seem to us inseparable a theory of life that is not accompanied by a criticism of knowledge is obliged to accept as they stand the concepts which the understanding puts at its disposal it can but enclose the facts willing or not in pre-existing frames which it regards as ultimate it thus obtains a symbolism which is convenient perhaps even necessary to positive science but not a direct vision of its object on the other hand a theory of knowledge which does not replace the intellect in the general evolution of life will teach us neither how the frames of knowledge have been constructed nor how we can enlarge or go beyond them it is necessary that these two inquiries theory of knowledge and theory of life should join each other and by a circular process push each other on unceasingly together they may solve by a method more sure brought nearer to experience the great problems that philosophy poses for if they should succeed in their common enterprise they would show us the formation of the intellect and thereby the genesis of that matter of which our intellect traces the general configuration they would dig to the very root of nature and of mind they would substitute for the false evolutionism of spencer 
which consists in cutting up present reality already evolved into little bits no less evolved and then recomposing it with these fragments thus positing in advance everything that is to be explained a true evolutionism in which reality would be followed in its generation and its growth but a philosophy of this kind will not be made in a day unlike the philosophical systems properly so called each of which was the individual work of a man of genius and sprang up as a whole to be taken or left it will only be built up by the collective and progressive effort of many thinkers of many observers also completing correcting and improving one another so the present essay does not aim at resolving at once the greatest problems it simply desires to define the method and to permit a glimpse on some essential points of the possibility of its application its plan is traced by the subject itself in the first chapter we try on the evolutionary progress the two ready-made garments that our understanding puts at our disposal mechanism and finality we show that they do not fit neither the one nor the other but that one of them might be recut and re-sown and in this new form fit less badly than the other in order to transcend the point of view of the understanding we try in our second chapter to reconstruct the main lines of evolution along which life has travelled by the side of that which has led to the human intellect the intellect is thus brought back to its generating cause which we then have to grasp in itself and follow in its movement it is an effort of this kind that we attempt incompletely indeed in our third chapter a fourth and last part is meant to show how our understanding itself by submitting to a certain discipline might prepare a philosophy which transcends it for that a glance over the history of systems became necessary together with an analysis of the two great illusions to which as soon as it speculates on reality in general the human understanding is exposed end of section zero section one of evolution creatrice by henri bergson translated by arthur mitchell this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter one the evolution of life mechanism and teleology part one the existence of which we are most assured and which we know best is unquestionably our own for of every other object we have notions which may be considered external and superficial whereas of ourselves our perception is internal and profound what then do we find in this privileged case what is the precise meaning of the word exist let us recall here briefly the conclusions of an earlier work i find first of all that i pass from state to state i am warm or cold i am merry or sad i work or i do nothing i look at what is around me or i think of something else sensations feelings volitions ideas such are the changes into which my existence is divided and which colour it in turns i change then without ceasing but this is not saying enough change is far more radical than we are at first inclined to suppose for i speak of each of my states as if it formed a block and were a separate whole i say indeed that i change but the change seems to me to reside in the passage from one state to the next of each state taken separately i am apt to think that it remains the same during all the time that it prevails nevertheless a slight effort of attention would reveal to me that there is no feeling no idea no volition which is not undergoing change every moment if a mental state ceased to vary its duration would cease to flow 
let us take the most stable of internal states the visual perception of a motionless external object the object may remain the same i may look at it from the same side at the same angle in the same light nevertheless the vision i now have of it differs from that which i have just had even if only because the one is an instant older than the other my memory is there which conveys something of the past into the present my mental state as it advances on the road of time is continually swelling with the duration which it accumulates it goes on increasing rolling upon itself as a snowball on the snow still more is this the case with states more deeply internal such as sensations feelings desires etc which do not correspond like a simple visual perception to an unvarying external object but it is expedient to disregard this uninterrupted change and to notice it only when it becomes sufficient to impress a new attitude on the body a new direction on the attention then and then only we find that our state has changed the truth is that we change without ceasing and that the state itself is nothing but change this amounts to saying that there is no essential difference between passing from one state to another and persisting in the same state if the state which remains the same is more varied than we think on the other hand the passing from one state to another resembles more than we imagine a single state being prolonged the transition is continuous but just because we close our eyes to the unceasing variation of every psychical state we are obliged when the change has become so considerable as to force itself on our attention to speak as if a new state were placed alongside the previous one of this new state we assume that it remains unvarying in its turn and so on endlessly the apparent discontinuity of the psychical life is then due to our attention being fixed on it by a series of separate acts actually there is only a gentle slope but in following the broken line of our acts of attention we think we perceive separate steps true our psychic life is full of the unforeseen a thousand incidents arise which seem to be cut off from those which precede them and to be disconnected from those which follow discontinuous though they appear however in point of fact they stand out against the continuity of a background on which they are designed and to which indeed they owe the intervals that separate them they are the beats of the drum which break forth here and there in the symphony our attention fixes on them because they interest it more but each of them is borne by the fluid mass of our whole psychical existence each is only the best illuminated point of a moving zone which comprises all that we feel or think or will all in short that we are at any given moment it is this entire zone which in reality makes up our state now states thus defined cannot be regarded as distinct elements they continue each other in an endless flow but as our attention has distinguished and separated them artificially it is obliged next to reunite them by an artificial bond it imagines therefore a formless ego indifferent and unchangeable on which it threads the psychic states which it has set up as independent entities instead of a flux of fleeting shades merging into each other it perceives distinct and so to speak solid colors set side by side like the beads of a necklace it must perforce then suppose a thread also itself solid to hold the beads together but if this colourless substratum is perpetually coloured by that which covers it it is for us in its indeterminateness as if it did not exist since we only perceive what is coloured or in other words psychic states as a matter of fact this substratum has no reality 
it is merely a symbol intended to recall unceasingly to our consciousness the artificial character of the process by which the attention places clean-cut states side by side where actually there is a continuity which unfolds if our existence were composed of separate states with an impassive ego to unite them for us there would be no duration for an ego which does not change does not endure and a psychic change which remains the same so long as it is not replaced by the following state does not endure either vain therefore is the attempt to range such states beside each other on the ego supposed to sustain them never can these solids strung upon a solid make up that duration which flows what we actually obtain in this way is an artificial imitation of the internal life a static equivalent which will lend itself better to the requirements of logic and language just because we have eliminated from it the element of real time but as regards the psychical life unfolding beneath the symbols which conceal it we readily perceive that time is just the stuff it is made of there is moreover no stuff more resistant nor more substantial for our duration is not merely one instant replacing another if it were there would never be anything but the present no prolonging of the past into the actual no evolution no concrete duration duration is the continuous progress of the past which gnaws into the future and which swells as it advances and as the past grows without ceasing so also there is no limit to its preservation memory as we have tried to prove is not a faculty of putting away recollections in a drawer or of inscribing them in a register there is no register no drawer there is not even properly speaking a faculty for a faculty works intermittently when it will or when it can whilst the piling up of the past upon the past goes on without relaxation in reality the past is preserved by itself automatically in its entirety probably it follows us at every instant all that we have felt thought and willed from our earliest infancy is there leaning over the present which is about to join it pressing against the portals of consciousness that would fain leave it outside the cerebral mechanism is arranged just so as to drive back into the unconscious almost the whole of this past and to admit beyond the threshold only that which can cast light on the present situation or further the action now being prepared in short only that which can give useful work at the most a few superfluous recollections may succeed in smuggling themselves through the half-open door these memories messengers from the unconscious remind us of what we are dragging behind us unawares but even though we may have no distinct idea of it we feel vaguely that our past remains present to us what are we in fact what is our character if not the condensation of the history that we have lived from our birth nay even before our birth since we bring with us prenatal dispositions doubtless we think with only a small part of our past but it is with our entire past including the original bent of our soul that we desire will and act our past then as a whole is made manifest to us in its impulse it is felt in the form of tendency although a small part of it only is known in the form of idea from this survival of the past it follows that consciousness cannot go through the same state twice the circumstances may still be the same but they will act no longer on the same person since they find him at a new moment of his history our personality which is being built up each instant with its accumulated experience changes without ceasing by changing it prevents any state although superficially identical with another from ever repeating it in its very depth 
that is why our duration is irreversible we could not live over again a single moment for we should have to begin by effacing the memory of all that had followed even could we erase this memory from our intellect we could not from our will thus our personality shoots grows and ripens without ceasing each of its moments is something new added to what was before we may go further it is not only something new but something unforeseeable doubtless my present state is explained by what was in me and by what was acting on me a moment ago in analyzing it i should find no other elements but even a superhuman intelligence would not have been able to foresee the simple indivisible form which gives to these purely abstract elements their concrete organization for to foresee consists of projecting into the future what has been perceived in the past or of imagining for a later time a new grouping in a new order of elements already perceived but that which has never been perceived and which is at the same time simple is necessarily unforeseeable now such is the case with each of our states regarded as a moment in a history that is gradually unfolding it is simple and it cannot have been already perceived since it concentrates in its indivisibility all that has been perceived and what the present is adding to it besides it is an original moment of a no less original history the finished portrait is explained by the features of the model by the nature of the artist by the colors spread out on the palette but even with the knowledge of what explains it no one not even the artist could have foreseen exactly what the portrait would be for to predict it would have been to produce it before it was produced an absurd hypothesis which is its own refutation even so with regard to the moments of our life of which we are the artisans each of them is a kind of creation and just as the talent of the painter is formed or deformed in any case is modified under the very influence of the works he produces so each of our states at the moment of its issue modifies our personality being indeed the new form that we are just assuming it is then right to say that what we do depends on what we are but it is necessary to add also that we are to a certain extent what we do and that we are creating ourselves continually this creation of self by self is the more complete the more one reasons on what one does for reason does not proceed in such matters as in geometry where impersonal premises are given once for all and an impersonal conclusion must perforce be drawn here on the contrary the same reasons may dictate to different persons or to the same person at different moments acts profoundly different although equally reasonable the truth is that they are not quite the same reasons since they are not those of the same person nor of the same moment that is why we cannot deal with them in the abstract from outside as in geometry nor solve for another the problems by which he is faced in life each must solve them from within on his own account but we need not go more deeply into this we are seeking only the precise meaning that our consciousness gives to this word exist and we find that for a conscious being to exist is to change to change is to mature to mature is to go on creating oneself endlessly should the same be said of existence in general a material object of whatever kind presents opposite characters to those which we have just been describing either it remains as it is or else if it changes under the influence of an external force our idea of this change is that of a displacement of parts which themselves do not change if these parts took to changing we should split them up in their turn 
we should thus descend to the molecules of which the fragments are made to the atoms that make up the molecules to the corpuscles that generate the atoms to the imponderable within which the corpuscle is perhaps a mere vortex in short we should push the division or analysis as far as necessary but we should stop only before the unchangeable now we say that a composite object changes by the displacement of its parts but when a part has left its position there is nothing to prevent its return to it a group of elements which has gone through a state can therefore always find its way back to that state if not by itself at least by means of an external cause able to restore everything to its place this amounts to saying that any state of the group may be repeated as often as desired and consequently that the group does not grow old it has no history thus nothing is created therein neither form nor matter what the group will be is already present in what it is provided what it is includes all the points of the universe with which it is related a superhuman intellect could calculate for any moment of time the position of any point of the system in space and as there is nothing more in the form of the whole than the arrangement of its parts the future forms of the system are theoretically visible in its present configuration all our belief in objects all our operations on the systems that science isolates rest in fact on the idea that time does not bite into them we have touched on this question in an earlier work and shall return to it in the course of the present study for the moment we will confine ourselves to pointing out that the abstract time t attributed by science to a material object or to an isolated system consists only in a certain number of simultaneities or more generally of correspondences and that this number remains the same whatever be the nature of the intervals between the correspondences with these intervals we are never concerned when dealing with inert matter or if they are considered it is in order to count therein fresh correspondences between which again we shall not care what happens common sense which is occupied with detached objects and also science which considers isolated systems are concerned only with the ends of the intervals and not with the intervals themselves therefore the flow of time might assume an infinite rapidity the entire past present and future of material objects or of isolated systems might be spread out all at once in space without there being anything to change either in the formulae of the scientist or even in the language of common sense the number t would always stand for the same thing it would still count the same number of correspondences between the states of the objects or systems and the points of the line ready drawn which would be then the course of time yet succession is an undeniable fact even in the material world though our reasoning on isolated systems may imply that their history past present and future might be instantaneously unfurled like a fan this history in point of fact unfolds itself gradually as if it occupied a duration like our own if i want to mix a glass of sugar and water i must willy-nilly wait until the sugar melts this little fact is big with meaning for here the time i have to wait is not that mathematical time which would apply equally well to the entire history of the material world even if that history were spread out instantaneously in space it coincides with my impatience that is to say with a certain portion of my own duration which i cannot protract or contract as i like it is no longer something thought it is something lived it is no longer a relation it is an absolute 
what else can this mean than that the glass of water the sugar and the process of the sugars melting in the water are abstractions and that the whole within which they have been cut out by my senses and understanding progresses it may be in the manner of a consciousness certainly the operation by which science isolates and closes a system is not altogether artificial if it had no objective foundation we could not explain why it is clearly indicated in some cases and impossible in others we shall see that matter has a tendency to constitute isolable systems that can be treated geometrically in fact we shall define matter by just this tendency but it is only a tendency matter does not go to the end and the isolation is never complete if science does go to the end and isolate completely it is for convenience of study it is understood that the so-called isolated system remains subject to certain external influences science merely leaves these alone either because it finds them slight enough to be negligible or because it intends to take them into account later on it is none the less true that these influences are so many threads which bind up the system to another more extensive and to this a third which includes both and so on to the system most objectively isolated and most independent of all the solar system complete but even here the isolation is not absolute our sun radiates heat and light beyond the farthest planet and on the other hand it moves in a certain fixed direction drawing with it the planets and their satellites the thread attaching it to the rest of the universe is doubtless very tenuous nevertheless it is along this thread that is transmitted down to the smallest particle of the world in which we live the duration imminent to the whole of the universe the universe endures the more we study the nature of time the more we shall comprehend that duration means invention the creation of forms the continual elaboration of the absolutely new the systems marked off by science endure only because they are bound up inseparably with the rest of the universe it is true that in the universe itself two opposite movements are to be distinguished as we shall see later on descent and ascent the first only unwinds a roll ready prepared in principle it might be accomplished almost instantaneously like releasing a spring but the ascending movement which corresponds to an inner work of ripening or creating endures essentially and imposes its rhythm on the first which is inseparable from it there is no reason therefore why a duration and so a form of existence like our own should not be attributed to the systems that science isolates provided such systems are reintegrated into the whole but they must be so reintegrated the same is even more obviously true of the objects cut out by our perception the distinct outlines which we see in an object and which give it its individuality are only the design of a certain kind of influence that we might exert on a certain point of space it is the plan of our eventual actions that is sent back to our eyes as though by a mirror when we see the surfaces and edges of things suppress this action and with it consequently those main directions which by perception are traced out for it in the entanglement of the real and the individuality of the body is reabsorbed in the universal interaction which without doubt is reality itself now we have considered material objects generally are there not some objects privileged the bodies we perceive are so to speak cut out of the stuff of nature by our perception and the scissors follow in some way the marking of lines along which action might be taken but the body which is to perform this action the body which marks out upon matter the design of its eventual actions even before they are actual 
the body that has only to point its sensory organs on the flow of the real in order to make that flow crystallize into definite forms and thus to create all the other bodies in short the living body is this a body as others are doubtless it also consists in a portion of extension bound up with the rest of extension an intimate part of the whole subject to the same physical and chemical laws that govern any and every portion of matter but while the subdivision of matter into separate bodies is relative to our perception while the building up of closed-off systems of material points is relative to our science the living body has been separated and closed off by nature herself it is composed of unlike parts that complete each other it performs diverse functions that involve each other it is an individual and of no other object not even of the crystal can this be said for a crystal has neither difference of parts nor diversity of functions no doubt it is hard to decide even in the organized world what is individual and what is not the difficulty is great even in the animal kingdom with plants it is almost insurmountable this difficulty is moreover due to profound causes on which we shall dwell later we shall see that individuality admits of any number of degrees and that it is not fully realized anywhere even in man but that is no reason for thinking it is not a characteristic property of life the biologist who proceeds as a geometrician is too ready to take advantage here of our inability to give a precise and general definition of individuality a perfect definition applies only to a completed reality now vital properties are never entirely realized though always on the way to become so they are not so much states as tendencies and a tendency achieves all that it aims at only if it is not thwarted by another tendency how then could this occur in the domain of life where as we shall show the interaction of antagonistic tendencies is always implied in particular it may be said of individuality that while the tendency to individuate is everywhere present in the organized world it is everywhere opposed by the tendency towards reproduction for the individuality to be perfect it would be necessary that no detached part of the organism could live separately but then reproduction would be impossible for what is reproduction but the building up of a new organism with a detached fragment of the old individuality therefore harbors its enemy at home its very need of perpetuating itself in time condemns it never to be complete in space the biologist must take due account of both tendencies in every instance and it is therefore useless to ask him for a definition of individuality that shall fit all cases and work automatically but too often one reasons about the things of life in the same way as about the conditions of crude matter nowhere is the confusion so evident as in discussions about individuality we are shown the stumps of a lumbriculus each regenerating its head and living thenceforward as an independent individual a hydra whose pieces become so many fresh hydras a sea urchin's egg whose fragments develop complete embryos where then we are asked was the individuality of the egg the hydra the worm but because there are several individuals now it does not follow that there was not a single individual just before no doubt when i have seen several drawers fall from a chest i have no longer the right to say that the article was all of one piece but the fact is that there can be nothing more in the present of the chest of drawers than there was in its past and if it is made up of several different pieces now it was so from the date of its manufacture generally speaking unorganized bodies which are what we have need of in order that we may act and on which we have modeled our fashion of thinking are regulated by this simple law 
the present contains nothing more than the past and what is found in the effect was already in the cause but suppose that the distinctive feature of the organized body is that it grows and changes without ceasing as indeed the most superficial observation testifies there would be nothing astonishing in the fact that it was one in the first instance and afterwards many the reproduction of unicellular organisms consists in just this the living being divides into two halves of which each is a complete individual true in the more complex animals nature localizes in the almost independent sexual cells the power of producing the whole anew but something of this power may remain diffused in the rest of the organism as the facts of regeneration prove and it is conceivable that in certain privileged cases the faculty may persist integrally in a latent condition and manifest itself on the first opportunity in truth that i may have the right to speak of individuality it is not necessary that the organism should be without the power to divide into fragments that are able to live it is sufficient that it should have presented a certain systematization of parts before the division and that the same systematization tend to be reproduced in each separate portion afterwards now that is precisely what we observe in the organic world we may conclude then that individuality is never perfect and that it is often difficult sometimes impossible to tell what is an individual and what is not but that life nevertheless manifests a search for individuality as if it strove to constitute systems naturally isolated naturally closed by this is a living being distinguished from all that our perception or our science isolates or closes artificially it would therefore be wrong to compare it to an object should we wish to find a term of comparison in the inorganic world it is not to a determinate material object but much rather to the totality of the material universe that we ought to compare the living organism it is true that the comparison would not be worth much for a living being is observable whilst the whole of the universe is constructed or reconstructed by thought but at least our attention would thus have been called to the essential character of organization like the universe as a whole like each conscious being taken separately the organism which lives is a thing that endures its past in its entirety is prolonged into its present and abides there actual and acting how otherwise could we understand that it passes through distinct and well-marked phases that it changes its age in short that it has a history if i consider my body in particular i find that like my consciousness it matures little by little from infancy to old age like myself it grows old indeed maturity and old age are properly speaking attributes only of my body it is only metaphorically that i apply the same names to the corresponding changes of my conscious self now if i pass from the top to the bottom of the scale of living beings from one of the most to one of the least differentiated from the multicellular organism of man to the unicellular organism of the infusorian i find even in this simple cell the same process of growing old the infusorian is exhausted at the end of a certain number of divisions and though it may be possible by modifying the environment to put off the moment when a rejuvenation by conjugation becomes necessary this cannot be indefinitely postponed it is true that between these two extreme cases in which the organism is completely individualized there might be found a multitude of others in which the individuality is less well marked and in which although there is doubtless an aging somewhere one cannot say exactly what it is that grows old once more there is no universal biological law which applies precisely and automatically to every living thing 
there are only directions in which life throws out species in general each particular species in the very act by which it is constituted affirms its independence follows its caprice deviates more or less from the straight line sometimes even remounts the slope and seems to turn its back on its original direction it is easy enough to argue that a tree never grows old since the tips of its branches are always equally young always equally capable of engendering new trees by budding but in such an organism which is after all a society rather than an individual something ages if only the leaves and the interior of the trunk and each cell considered separately evolves in a specific way wherever anything lives there is open somewhere a register in which time is being inscribed this it will be said is only a metaphor it is of the very essence of mechanism in fact to consider as metaphorical every expression which attributes to time an effective action and a reality of its own in vain does immediate experience show us that the very basis of our conscious existence is memory that is to say the prolongation of the past into the present or in a word duration acting and irreversible in vain does reason prove to us that the more we get away from the objects cut out and the systems isolated by common sense and by science and the deeper we dig beneath them the more we have to do with a reality which changes as a whole in its inmost states as if an accumulative memory of the past made it impossible to go back again the mechanistic instinct of the mind is stronger than reason stronger than immediate experience the metaphysician that we each carry unconsciously within us and the presence of which is explained as we shall see later on by the very place that man occupies amongst the living beings has its fixed requirements its ready-made explanations its irreducible propositions all unite in denying concrete duration change must be reducible to an arrangement or rearrangement of parts the irreversibility of time must be an appearance relative to our ignorance the impossibility of turning back must be only the inability of man to put things in place again so growing old can be nothing more than the gradual gain or loss of certain substances perhaps both together time is assumed to have just as much reality for a living being as for an hourglass in which the top part empties while the lower fills and all goes where it was before when you turn the glass upside down true biologists are not agreed on what is gained and what is lost between the day of birth and the day of death there are those who hold to the continual growth in the volume of protoplasm from the birth of the cell right on to its death more probable and more profound is the theory according to which the diminution bears on the quantity of nutritive substance contained in that inner environment in which the organism is being renewed and the increase on the quantity of unexcreted residual substances which accumulating in the body finally crust it over must we however with an eminent bacteriologist declare any explanation of growing old insufficient that does not take account of phagocytosis we do not feel qualified to settle the question but the fact that the two theories agree in affirming the constant accumulation or loss of a certain kind of matter even though they have little in common as to what is gained and lost shows pretty well that the frame of the explanation has been furnished a priori we shall see this more and more as we proceed with our study it is not easy in thinking of time to escape the image of the hourglass the cause of growing old must lie deeper we hold that there is unbroken continuity between the evolution of the embryo and that of the complete organism 
the impetus which causes a living being to grow larger to develop and to age is the same that has caused it to pass through the phases of the embryonic life the development of the embryo is a perpetual change of form anyone who attempts to note all its successive aspects becomes lost in an infinity as is inevitable in dealing with a continuum life does but prolong this prenatal evolution the proof of this is that it is often impossible for us to say whether we are dealing with an organism growing old or with an embryo continuing to evolve such is the case for example with the larvae of insects and crustacea on the other hand in an organism such as our own crises like puberty or the menopause in which the individual is completely transformed are quite comparable to changes in the course of larval or embryonic life yet they are part and parcel of the process of our ageing although they occur at a definite age and within a time that may be quite short no one would maintain that they appear then ex abrupto from without simply because a certain age is reached just as a legal right is granted to us on our one and twentieth birthday it is evident that a change like that of puberty is in course of preparation at every instant from birth and even before birth and that the ageing up to that crisis consists in part at least of this gradual preparation in short what is properly vital in growing old is the insensible infinitely graduated continuance of the change of form now this change is undoubtedly accompanied by phenomena of organic destruction to these and to these alone will a mechanistic explanation of ageing be confined it will note the facts of sclerosis the gradual accumulation of residual substances the growing hypertrophy of the protoplasm of the cell but under these visible effects an inner cause lies hidden the evolution of the living being like that of the embryo implies a continual recording of duration a persistence of the past in the present and so an appearance at least of organic memory the present state of an unorganized body depends exclusively on what happened at the previous instant and likewise the position of the material points of a system defined and isolated by science is determined by the position of these same points at the moment immediately before in other words the laws that govern unorganized matter are expressible in principle by different equations in which time in the sense in which the mathematician takes this word would play the role of independent variable is it so with the laws of life does the state of a living body find its complete explanation in the state immediately before yes if it is agreed a priori to liken the living body to other bodies and to identify it for the sake of the argument with the artificial systems on which the chemist physicist and astronomer operate but in astronomy physics and chemistry the proposition has a perfectly definite meaning it signifies that certain aspects of the present important for science are calculable as functions of the immediate past nothing of the sort in the domain of life here calculation touches at most certain phenomena of organic destruction organic creation on the contrary the evolutionary phenomena which properly constitute life we cannot in any way subject to a mathematical treatment it will be said that this impotence is due only to our ignorance but it may equally well express the fact that the present moment of a living body does not find its explanation in the moment immediately before that all the past of the organism must be added to that moment its heredity in fact the whole of a very long history in the second of these two hypotheses not in the first is really expressed the present state of the biological sciences as well as their direction
as for the idea that the living body might be treated by some superhuman calculator in the same mathematical way as our solar system this has gradually arisen from a metaphysic which has taken a more precise form since the physical discoveries of galileo but which as we shall show was always the natural metaphysic of the human mind its apparent clearness our impatient desire to find it true the enthusiasm with which so many excellent minds accept it without proof all the seductions in short that it exercises on our thought should put us on our guard against it the attraction it has for us proves well enough that it gives satisfaction to an innate inclination but as will be seen further on the intellectual tendencies innate to-day which life must have created in the course of its evolution are not at all meant to supply us with an explanation of life they have something else to do any attempt to distinguish between an artificial and a natural system between the dead and the living runs counter to this tendency at once thus it happens that we find it equally difficult to imagine that the organized has duration and that the unorganized has not when we say that the state of an artificial system depends exclusively on its state at the moment before does it not seem as if we were bringing time in as if the system had something to do with real duration and on the other hand though the whole of the past goes into the making of the living being's present moment does not organic memory press it into the moment immediately before the present so that the moment immediately before becomes the sole cause of the present one to speak thus is to ignore the cardinal difference between concrete time along which a real system develops and that abstract time which enters into our speculations on artificial systems what does it mean to say that the state of an artificial system depends on what it was at the moment immediately before there is no instant immediately before another instant there could not be any more than there could be one mathematical point touching another the instant immediately before is in reality that which is connected with the present instant by the interval dt all that you mean to say therefore is that the present state of the system is defined by equations into which differential coefficients enter such as ds by dt dv by dt that is to say at bottom present velocities and present accelerations you are therefore really speaking only of the present a present it is true considered along with its tendency the system science works with are in fact in an instantaneous present that is always being renewed such systems are never in that real concrete duration in which the past remains bound up with the present when the mathematician calculates the future state of a system at the end of time t there is nothing to prevent him from supposing that the universe vanishes from this moment till that and suddenly reappears it is the teeth moment only that counts and that will be a mere instant what will flow on in the interval that is to say real time does not count and cannot enter into the calculation if the mathematician says that he puts himself inside this interval he means that he is placing himself at a certain point at a particular moment therefore at the extremity again of a certain time t prime with the interval up to t prime he is not concerned if he divides the interval into infinitely small parts by considering the differential dt he thereby expresses merely the fact that he will consider accelerations and velocities that is to say numbers which denote tendencies and enable him to calculate the state of the system at a given moment but he is always speaking of a given moment a static moment that is and not of flowing time in short the world the mathematician deals with is a world that dies and is reborn at every instant the world which descartes was thinking of when he spoke of continued creation 
but in time thus conceived how could evolution which is the very essence of life ever take place evolution implies a real persistence of the past in the present a duration which is as it were a hyphen a connecting link in other words to know a living being or natural system is to get at the very interval of duration while the knowledge of an artificial or mathematical system applies only to the extremity continuity of change preservation of the past in the present real duration the living being seems then to share these attributes with consciousness can we go further and say that life like conscious activity is invention is unceasing creation end of section one Section 2 of Evolution Creatrice by Henri Bergson. Translated by Arthur Mitchell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1, Part 2. It does not enter into our plan to set down here the proofs of transformism. We wish only to explain in a word or two why we shall accept it, in the present work, as a sufficiently exact and precise expression of the facts actually known. The idea of transformism is already in germ in the natural classification of organized beings. The naturalist, in fact, brings together the organisms that are like each other, then divides the group into subgroups within which the likeness is still greater, and so on. All through the operation, the characters of the group appear as general themes on which each of the subgroups performs its particular variation. Now such is just the relation we find in the animal and in the vegetable world between the generator and the generated. On the canvas which the ancestor passes on, and which his descendants possess in common, each puts his own original embroidery. True, the differences between the descendant and the ancestor are slight, and it may be asked whether the same living matter presents enough plasticity to take in turn such different forms as those of a fish, a reptile, and a bird. But to this question, observation gives a peremptory answer it shows that up to a certain period in its development the embryo of the bird is hardly distinguishable from that of the reptile and that the individual develops throughout the embryonic life in general a series of transformations comparable to those through which according to the theory of evolution one species passes into another a single cell the result of the combination of two cells male and female accomplishes this work by dividing Every day, before our eyes, the highest forms of life are springing from a very elementary form. Experience, then, shows that the most complex has been able to issue from the most simple by way of evolution. Now, has it arisen so, as a matter of fact? Paleontology, in spite of the insufficiency of its evidence, invites us to believe it has. For where it makes out the order of succession of species without any precision, this order is just what considerations drawn from embryogeny and comparative anatomy would lead anyone to suppose. And each new paleontological discovery brings transformism a new confirmation. Thus, the proof drawn from mere observation is ever being strengthened, while, on the other hand, experiment is removing the objections one by one. The recent experiments of H. de Vries, for instance, by showing that important variations can be produced suddenly and transmitted regularly, have overthrown some of the greatest difficulties raised by the theory. They have enabled us greatly to shorten the time biological evolution seems to demand. 
they also render us less exacting toward paleontology so that all things considered the transformist hypothesis looks more and more like a close approximation to the truth it is not rigorously demonstrable but failing the certainty of theoretical or experimental demonstration there is a probability which is continually growing due to evidence which while coming short of direct proof seems to point persistently in its direction such is the kind of probability that the theory of transformism offers let us admit however that transformism may be wrong let us suppose that species are proved by inference or by experiment to have arisen by a discontinuous process of which today we have no idea would the doctrine be affected in so far as it has a special interest or importance for us classification would probably remain in its broad lines the actual data of embryology would also remain the correspondence between comparative embryogeny and comparative anatomy would remain too therefore biology could and would continue to establish between living forms the same relations and the same kinship as transformism supposes today it would be it is true an ideal kinship and no longer a material affiliation but as the actual data of paleontology would also remain we should still have to admit that it is successively not simultaneously that the forms between which we find an ideal kinship have appeared now the evolutionist theory so far as it has any importance for philosophy requires no more it consists above all in establishing relations of ideal kinship and in maintaining that wherever there is this relation of so to speak logical affiliation between forms there is also a relation of chronological succession between the species in which these forms are materialized both arguments would hold in any case and hence an evolution somewhere would still have to be supposed whether in a creative thought in which the ideas of the different species are generated by each other exactly as transformism holds that species themselves are generated on the earth or in a plan of vital organization immanent in nature which gradually works itself out in which the relations of logical and chronological affiliation between pure forms are just those which transformism presents as relations of real affiliation between living individuals or finally in some unknown cause of life which develops its effects as if they generated one another evolution would then simply have been transposed made to pass from the visible to the invisible almost all that transformism tells us today would be preserved open to interpretation in another way will it not therefore be better to stick to the letter of transformism as almost all scientists profess it apart from the question to what extent the theory of evolution describes the facts and to what extent it symbolizes them there is nothing in it that is irreconcilable with the doctrines it has claimed to replace even with that of special creations to which it is usually opposed for this reason we think the language of transformism forces itself now upon all philosophy as the dogmatic affirmation of transformism forces itself upon science but then we must no longer speak of life in general as an abstraction or as a mere heading under which all living beings are inscribed at a certain moment in certain points of space a visible current has taken rise this current of life traversing the bodies it has organized one after another passing from generation to generation has become divided amongst species and distributed amongst individuals without losing anything of its force rather intensifying in proportion to its advance it is well known that on the theory of the continuity of the germ plasm maintained by weismann 
the sexual elements of the generating organism pass on their properties directly to the sexual elements of the organism engendered in this extreme form the theory has seemed debatable for it is only in exceptional cases that there are any signs of sexual glands at the time of segmentation of the fertilized egg but though the cells that engender the sexual elements do not generally appear at the beginning of the embryonic life it is none the less true that they are always formed out of those tissues of the embryo which have not undergone any particular functional differentiation and whose cells are made of unmodified protoplasm in other words the genetic power of the fertilized ovum weakens the more it is spread over the growing mass of the tissues of the embryo but while it is being thus diluted it is concentrating anew something of itself on a certain special point to wit the cells from which the ova or spermatozoa will develop it might therefore be said that though the germplasm is not continuous there is at least continuity of genetic energy this energy being expended only at certain instants for just enough time to give the requisite impulsion to the embryonic life and being recouped as soon as possible in new sexual elements in which again it bides its time regarded from this point of view life is like a current passing from germ to germ through the medium of a developed organism it is as if the organism itself were only an excrescence a bud caused to sprout by the former germ endeavouring to continue itself into a new germ the essential thing is the continuous progress indefinitely pursued an invisible progress on which each visible organism rides during the short interval of time given it to live now the more we fix our attention on this continuity of life the more we see that organic evolution resembles the evolution of a consciousness in which the past presses against the present and causes the upspringing of a new form of consciousness incommensurable with its antecedents that the appearance of a vegetable or animal species is due to specific causes nobody will gainsay but this can only mean that if after the fact we could know these causes in detail we could explain by them the form that has been produced foreseeing the form is out of the question it may perhaps be said that the form could be foreseen if we could know in all their details the conditions under which it will be produced but these conditions are built up into it and are part and parcel of its being they are peculiar to that phase of its history in which life finds itself at the moment of producing the form how could we know beforehand a situation that is unique of its kind that has never yet occurred and will never occur again of the future only that is foreseen which is like the past or can be made up again with elements like those of the past such is the case with astronomical physical and chemical facts with all facts which form part of a system in which elements supposed to be unchanging are merely put together in which the only changes are changes of position in which there is no theoretical absurdity in imagining that things are restored to their place in which consequently the same total phenomenon or at least the same elementary phenomena can be repeated but an original situation which imparts something of its own originality to its elements that is to say to the partial views that are taken of it how can such a situation be pictured as given before it is actually produced all that can be said is that once produced it will be explained by the elements that analysis will then carve out of it now what is true of the production of a new species is also true of the production of a new individual and more generally of any moment of any living form for though the variation must reach a certain importance and a certain generality in order to give rise to a new species it is being produced every moment continuously and insensibly in every living being 
and it is evident that even the sudden mutations which we now hear of are possible only if a process of incubation or rather of maturing is going on throughout a series of generations that do not seem to change in this sense it might be said of life as of consciousness that at every moment it is creating something but against this idea of the absolute originality and unforeseeability of forms our whole intellect rises in revolt the essential function of our intellect as the evolution of life has fashioned it is to be a light for our conduct to make ready for our action on things to foresee for a given situation the events favourable or unfavourable which may follow thereupon intellect therefore instinctively selects in a given situation whatever is like something already known it seeks this out in order that it may apply its principle that like produces like in just this does the prevision of the future by common sense consist science carries this faculty to the highest possible degree of exactitude and precision but does not alter its essential character like ordinary knowledge in dealing with things science is concerned only with the aspect of repetition though the whole be original science will always manage to analyze it into elements or aspects which are approximately a reproduction of the past science can work only on what is supposed to repeat itself that is to say on what is withdrawn by hypothesis from the action of real time anything that is irreducible and irreversible in the successive moments of a history eludes science to get a notion of this irreducibility and irreversibility we must break with scientific habits which are adapted to the fundamental requirements of thought we must do violence to the mind to go counter to the natural bent of the intellect but that is just the function of philosophy in vain therefore does life evolve before our eyes as a continuous creation of unforeseeable form the idea always persists that form unforeseeability and continuity are mere appearance the outward reflection of our own ignorance what is presented to the senses as a continuous history would break up we are told into a series of successive states what gives you the impression of an original state resolves upon analysis into elementary facts each of which is the repetition of a fact already known what you call an unforeseeable form is only a new arrangement of old elements the elementary causes which in their totality have determined this arrangement are themselves old causes repeated in a new order knowledge of the elements and of the elementary causes would have made it possible to foretell the living form which is their sum and their resultant when we have resolved the biological aspect of phenomena into physico-chemical factors we will leap if necessary over physics and chemistry themselves we will go from masses to molecules from molecules to atoms from atoms to corpuscles we must indeed at last come to something that can be treated as a kind of solar system astronomically if you deny it you oppose the very principle of scientific mechanism and you arbitrarily affirm that living matter is not made of the same elements as other matter we reply that we do not question the fundamental identity of inert matter and organized matter the only question is whether the natural systems which we call living beings must be assimilated to the artificial systems that science cuts out within inert matter or whether they must not rather be compared to that natural system which is the whole of the universe that life is a kind of mechanism i cordially agree but is it the mechanism of parts artificially isolated within the whole of the universe or is it the mechanism of the real whole the real whole might well be we conceive an indivisible continuity the systems we cut out within it would properly speaking not then be parts at all they would be partial views of the whole 
and with these partial views put end to end you will not make even a beginning of the reconstruction of the whole any more than by multiplying photographs of an object in a thousand different aspects you will reproduce the object itself so of life and of the physico-chemical phenomena to which you endeavour to reduce it analysis will undoubtedly resolve the process of organic creation into an ever-growing number of physico-chemical phenomena and chemists and physicists will have to do of course with nothing but these but it does not follow that chemistry and physics will ever give us the key to life a very small element of a curve is very near being a straight line and the smaller it is the nearer in the limit it may be termed a part of the curve or a part of the straight line as you please for in each of its points a curve coincides with its tangent so likewise vitality is tangent at any and every point to physical and chemical forces but such points are as a fact only views taken by a mind which imagines stops at various moments of the movement that generates the curve in reality life is no more made of physico-chemical elements than a curve is composed of straight lines in a general way the most radical progress a science can achieve is the working of the completed results into a new scheme of the whole by relation to which they become instantaneous and motionless views taken at intervals along the continuity of a movement such for example is the relation of modern to ancient geometry the latter purely static worked with figures drawn once for all the former studies the varying of a function that is the continuous movement by which the figure is described no doubt for greater strictness all considerations of motion may be eliminated from mathematical processes but the introduction of motion into the genesis of figures is nevertheless the origin of modern mathematics we believe that if biology could ever get as close to its object as mathematics does to its own it would become to the physics and chemistry of organized bodies what the mathematics of the moderns has proved to be in relation to ancient geometry the wholly superficial displacements of masses and molecules studied in physics and chemistry would become by relation to that inner vital movement which is transformation and not translation what the position of a moving object is to the movement of that object in space and so far as we can see the procedure by which we should then pass from the definition of a certain vital action to the system of physico-chemical facts which it implies would be like passing from the function to its derivative from the equation of the curve that is the law of the continuous movement by which the curve is generated to the equation of the tangent giving its instantaneous direction such a science would be a mechanics of transformation of which our mechanics of translation would become a particular case a simplification a projection on the plane of pure quantity and just as an infinity of functions have the same differential these functions differing from each other by a constant so perhaps the integration of the physico-chemical elements of properly vital action might determine that action only in part a part would be left to indetermination but such an integration can be no more than dreamed of we do not pretend that the dream will ever be realized we are only trying by carrying a certain comparison as far as possible to show up to what point our theory goes along with pure mechanism and where they part company imitation of the living by the unorganized may however go a good way not only does chemistry make organic syntheses but we have succeeded in reproducing artificially the external appearance of certain facts of organization such as indirect cell division and protoplasmic circulation it is well known that the protoplasm of the cell effects various movements within its envelope 
on the other hand indirect cell division is the outcome of very complex operations some involving the nucleus and others the cytoplasm these latter commence by the doubling of the centrosome a small spherical body alongside the nucleus the two centrosomes thus obtained draw apart attract the broken and doubled ends of the filament of which the original nucleus mainly consisted and join them to form two fresh nuclei about which the two new cells are constructed which will succeed the first now in their broad lines and in their external appearance some at least of these operations have been successfully imitated if some sugar or table salt is pulverized and some very old oil is added and a drop of the mixture is observed under the microscope a froth of alveolar structure is seen whose configuration is like that of protoplasm according to certain theories and in which movements take place which are decidedly like those of protoplasmic circulation if in a froth of the same kind the air is extracted from an alveolus a cone of attraction is seen to form like those about the centrosomes which result in the division of the nucleus even the external motions of a unicellular organism of an amoeba at any rate are sometimes explained mechanically the displacements of an amoeba in a drop of water would be comparable to the motion to and fro of a grain of dust in a draughty room its mass is all the time absorbing certain soluble matters contained in the surrounding water and giving back to it certain others these continual exchanges like those between two vessels separated by a porous partition would create an ever-changing vortex around the little organism as for the temporary prolongations or pseudopodia which the amoeba seems to make they would be not so much given out by it as attracted from it by a kind of inhalation or suction of the surrounding medium in the same way we may perhaps come to explain the more complex movements which the infusorian makes with its vibratory cilia which moreover are probably only fixed pseudopodia but scientists are far from agreed on the value of explanations and schemas of this sort chemists have pointed out that even in the organic not to go so far as the organized science has reconstructed hitherto nothing but waste products of vital activity the peculiarly active plastic substances obstinately defy synthesis one of the most notable naturalists of our time has insisted on the opposition of two orders of phenomena observed in living tissues anagenesis and catagenesis the role of the anagenetic energies is to raise the inferior energies to their own level by assimilating inorganic substances they construct the tissues on the other hand the actual functioning of life excepting of course assimilation growth and reproduction is of the catagenic order exhibiting the fall not the rise of energy it is only with these facts of catagenic order that physicochemistry deals that is in short with the dead and not with the living the other kind of facts certainly seem to defy physicochemical analysis even if they are not anagenetic in the proper sense of the word as for the artificial imitation of the outward appearance of protoplasm should a real theoretic importance be attached to this when the question of the physical framework of protoplasm is not yet settled we are still further from compounding protoplasm chemically finally a physicochemical explanation of the motions of the amoeba and a fortiori of the behavior of the infusoria seems impossible to many of those who have closely observed these rudimentary organisms even in these humblest manifestations of life they discover traces of an effective psychological activity but instructive above all is the fact that the tendency to explain everything by physics and chemistry is discouraged rather than strengthened by deep study of histological phenomena 
such is the conclusion of the truly admirable book which the histologist e b wilson has devoted to the development of the cell the study of the cell has on the whole seemed to widen rather than to narrow the enormous gap that separates even the lowest forms of life from the inorganic world to sum up those who are concerned only with the functional activity of the living being are inclined to believe that physics and chemistry will give us the key to biological processes they have chiefly to do as a fact with phenomena that are repeated continually in the living being as in a chemical retort this explains in some measure the mechanistic tendencies of physiology on the contrary those whose attention is concentrated on the minute structure of living tissues on their genesis and evolution histologists and embryogenists on the one hand naturalists on the other are interested in the retort itself not merely in its contents they find that this retort creates its own form through a unique series of acts that really constitute a history thus histologists embryogenists and naturalists believe far less readily than physiologists in the physico-chemical character of vital actions the fact is neither one nor the other of these two theories neither that which affirms nor that which denies the possibility of chemically producing an elementary organism can claim the authority of experiment they are both unverifiable the former because science has not advanced a step toward the chemical synthesis of a living substance the second because there is no conceivable way of proving experimentally the impossibility of a fact but we have set forth the theoretical reasons which prevent us from likening the living being a system closed off by nature to the systems which our science isolates these reasons have less force we acknowledge in the case of a rudimentary organism like the amoeba which hardly evolves at all but they acquire more when we consider a complex organism which goes through a regular cycle of transformations the more duration marks the living being with its imprint the more obviously the organism differs from a mere mechanism over which duration glides without penetrating and the demonstration has most force when it applies to the evolution of life as a whole from its humblest origins to its highest forms inasmuch as this evolution constitutes through the unity and continuity of the animated matter which supports it a single indivisible history thus viewed the evolutionist hypothesis does not seem so closely akin to the mechanist conception of life as it is generally supposed to be of this mechanistic conception we do not claim of course to furnish a mathematical and final refutation but the refutation which we draw from the consideration of real time and which is in our opinion the only refutation possible becomes the more rigorous and cogent the more frankly the evolutionist hypothesis is assumed we must dwell a good deal more on this point but let us first show more clearly the notion of life to which we are leading up the mechanistic explanations we said hold good for the systems that our thought artificially detaches from the whole but of the whole itself and of the systems which within this whole seem to take after it we cannot admit a priori that they are mechanically explicable for then time would be useless and even unreal the essence of mechanical explanation in fact is to regard the future and the past as calculable functions of the present and thus to claim that all is given on this hypothesis past present and future would be open at a glance to a superhuman intellect capable of making the calculation indeed the scientists who have believed in the universality and perfect objectivity of mechanical explanations have consciously or unconsciously acted on a hypothesis of this kind 
laplace formulated it with the greatest precision an intellect which at a given instant knew all the forces with which nature is animated and the respective situations of the beings that compose nature supposing the said intellect were vast enough to subject these data to analysis would embrace in the same formula the motions of the greatest bodies in the universe and those of the slightest atom nothing would be uncertain for it and the future like the past would be present to its eyes and dubois raymond we can imagine the knowledge of nature arrived at a point where the universal process of the world might be represented by a single mathematical formula by one immense system of simultaneous differential equations from which could be deduced for each moment the position direction and velocity of every atom of the world huxley has expressed the same idea in a more concrete form if the fundamental proposition of evolution is true that the entire world living and not living is the result of the mutual interaction according to definite laws of the forces possessed by the molecules of which the primitive nebulosity of the universe was composed it is no less certain that the existing world lay potentially in the cosmic vapour and that a sufficient intellect could from a knowledge of the properties of the molecules of that vapour have predicted say the state of the fauna of great britain in eighteen sixty nine with as much certainty as one can say what will happen to the vapour of the breath in a cold winter's day in such a doctrine time is still spoken of one pronounces the word but one does not think of the thing for time is here deprived of efficacy and if it does nothing it is nothing radical mechanism implies a metaphysic in which the totality of the real is postulated complete in eternity and in which the apparent duration of things expresses merely the infirmity of a mind that cannot know everything at once but duration is something very different from this for our consciousness that is to say for that which is most indisputable in our experience we perceive duration as a stream against which we cannot go it is the foundation of our being and as we feel the very substance of the world in which we live it is of no use to hold up before our eyes the dazzling prospect of a universal mathematic we cannot sacrifice experience to the requirements of a system that is why we reject radical mechanism but radical finalism is quite as unacceptable and for the same reason the doctrine of teleology in its extreme form as we find it in leibniz for example implies that things and beings merely realize a program previously arranged but if there is nothing unforeseen no invention or creation in the universe time is useless again as in the mechanistic hypothesis here again it is supposed that all is given finalism thus understood is only inverted mechanism it springs from the same postulate with this sole difference that in the movement of our finite intellects along successive things whose successiveness is reduced to a mere appearance it holds in front of us the light with which it claims to guide us instead of putting it behind it substitutes the attraction of the future for the impulsion of the past but succession remains none the less a mere appearance as indeed does movement itself in the doctrine of leibniz time is reduced to a confused perception relative to the human standpoint a perception which would vanish like a rising mist for a mind seated at the centre of things yet finalism is not like mechanism a doctrine with fixed rigid outlines it admits of as many inflections as we like the mechanistic philosophy is to be taken or left it must be left if the least grain of dust by straying from the path foreseen by mechanics should show the slightest trace of spontaneity 
the doctrine of final causes on the contrary will never be definitively refuted if one form of it be put aside it will take another its principle which is essentially psychological is very flexible it is so extensible and thereby so comprehensive that one accepts something of it as soon as one rejects pure mechanism the theory we shall put forward in this book will therefore necessarily partake of finalism to a certain extent for that reason it is important to intimate exactly what we are going to take of it and what we mean to leave let us say at once that to thin out the leibnizian finalism by breaking it into an infinite number of pieces seems to us a step in the wrong direction this is however the tendency of the doctrine of finality it fully realizes that if the universe as a whole is the carrying out of a plan this cannot be demonstrated empirically and that even of the organized world alone it is hardly easier to prove all harmonious facts would equally well testify to the contrary nature sets living beings at discord with one another she everywhere presents disorder alongside of order retrogression alongside of progress but though finality cannot be affirmed either of the whole of matter or of the whole of life might it not yet be true says the finalist of each organism taken separately is there not a wonderful division of labor a marvelous solidarity among the parts of an organism perfect order in infinite complexity does not each living being thus realize a plan immanent in its substance this theory consists at bottom in breaking up the original notion of finality into bits it does not accept indeed it ridicules the idea of an external finality according to which living beings are ordered with regard to each other to suppose the grass made for the cow the lamb for the wolf that is all acknowledged to be absurd but there is we are told an internal finality each being is made for itself all its parts conspire for the greatest good of the whole and are intelligently organized in view of that end such is the notion of finality which has long been classic finalism has shrunk to the point of never embracing more than one living being at a time by making itself smaller it probably thought it would offer less surface for blows the truth is it lay open to them a great deal more radical as our own theory may appear finality is external or it is nothing at all consider the most complex and the most harmonious organism all the elements we are told conspire for the greatest good of the whole very well but let us not forget that each of these elements may itself be an organism in certain cases and that in subordinating the existence of this small organism to the life of the great one we accept the principle of an external finality the idea of a finality that is always internal is therefore a self-destructive notion an organism is composed of tissues each of which lives for itself the cells of which the tissues are made have also a certain independence strictly speaking if the subordination of all the elements of the individual to the individual itself were complete we might contend that they are not organisms reserve the name organism for the individual and recognize only internal finality but everyone knows that these elements may possess a true autonomy to say nothing of phagocytes which push independence to the point of attacking the organism that nourishes them or of germinal cells which have their own life alongside the somatic cells the facts of regeneration are enough here an element or a group of elements suddenly reveals that however limited its normal space and function it can transcend them occasionally it may even in certain cases be regarded as the equivalent of the whole there lies the stumbling block of the vitalistic theories we shall not reproach them as is ordinarily done with replying to the question by the question itself 
the vital principle may indeed not explain much but it is at least a sort of label affixed to our ignorance so as to remind us of this occasionally while mechanism invites us to ignore that ignorance but the position of vitalism is rendered very difficult by the fact that in nature there is neither purely internal finality nor absolutely distinct individuality the organized elements composing the individual have themselves a certain individuality and each will claim its vital principle if the individual pretends to have its own but on the other hand the individual itself is not sufficiently independent not sufficiently cut off from other things for us to allow it a vital principle of its own an organism such as a higher vertebrate is the most individuated of all organisms yet if we take into account that it is only the development of an ovum forming part of the body of its mother and of a spermatozoan belonging to the body of its father that the egg that is the ovum fertilized is a connecting link between the two progenitors since it is common to their two substances we shall realize that every individual organism even that of a man is merely a bud that has sprouted on the combined body of both its parents where then does the vital principle of the individual begin or end gradually we shall be carried further and further back up to the individual's remotest ancestors we shall find him solidary with each of them solidary with that little mass of protoplasmic jelly which is probably at the root of the genealogical tree of life being to a certain extent one with this primitive ancestor he is also solidary with all that descends from the ancestor in divergent directions in this sense each individual may be said to remain united with the totality of living beings by invisible bonds so it is of no use to try to restrict finality to the individuality of the living being if there is finality in the world of life it includes the whole of life in a single indivisible embrace this life common to all the living undoubtedly presents many gaps and incoherences and again it is not so mathematically one that it cannot allow each being to become individualized to a certain degree but it forms a single whole none the less and we have to choose between the out-and-out -out negation of finality and the hypothesis which coordinates not only the parts of an organism with the organism itself but also each living being with the collective whole of all others finality will not go down any easier for being taken as a powder either the hypothesis of a finality immanent in life should be rejected as a whole or it must undergo a treatment very different from pulverization the error of radical finalism as also that of radical mechanism is to extend too far the application of certain concepts that are natural to our intellect originally we think only in order to act our intellect has been cast in the mould of action speculation is a luxury while action is a necessity now in order to act we begin by proposing an end we make a plan then we go on to the detail of the mechanism which will bring it to pass this latter operation is possible only if we know what we can reckon on we must therefore have managed to extract resemblances from nature which enable us to anticipate the future thus we must consciously or unconsciously have made use of the law of causality moreover the more sharply the idea of efficient causality is defined in our mind the more it takes the form of a mechanical causality and this scheme in its turn is the more mathematical according as it expresses a more rigorous necessity that is why we have only to follow the bent of our mind to become mathematicians but on the other hand this natural mathematics is only the rigid unconscious skeleton beneath our conscious supple habit of linking the same causes to the same effects and the usual object of this habit is to guide actions inspired by intentions 
or what comes to the same to direct movements combined with a view to reproducing a pattern we are born artisans as we are born geometricians and indeed we are geometricians only because we are artisans thus the human intellect inasmuch as it is fashioned for the needs of human action is an intellect which proceeds at the same time by intention and by calculation by adapting means to ends and by thinking out mechanisms of more and more geometrical form whether nature be conceived as an immense machine regulated by mathematical laws or as the realization of a plan these two ways of regarding it are only the consummation of two tendencies of mind which are complementary to each other and which have their origin in the same vital necessities for that reason radical finalism is very near radical mechanism on many points both doctrines are reluctant to see in the course of things generally or even simply in the development of life an unforeseeable creation of form in considering reality mechanism regards only the aspect of similarity or repetition it is therefore dominated by this law that in nature there is only like reproducing like the more the geometry in mechanism is emphasized the less can mechanism admit that anything is ever created even pure form in so far as we are geometricians then we reject the unforeseeable we might accept it assuredly in so far as we are artists for art lives on creation and implies a latent belief in the spontaneity of nature but disinterested art is a luxury like pure speculation long before being artists we are artisans and all fabrication however rudimentary lives on likeness and repetition like the natural geometry which serves as its fulcrum fabrication works on models which it sets out to reproduce and even when it invents it proceeds or imagines itself to proceed by a new arrangement of elements already known its principle is that we must have like to produce like in short the strict application of the principle of finality like that of the principle of mechanical causality leads to the conclusion that all is given both principles say the same thing in their respective languages because they respond to the same need that is why again they agree in doing away with time real duration is that duration which gnaws on things and leaves on them the mark of its tooth if everything is in time everything changes inwardly and the same concrete reality never recurs repetition is therefore possible only in the abstract what is repeated is some aspect that our senses and especially our intellect have singled out from reality just because our action upon which all the effort of our intellect is directed can move only among repetitions thus concentrated on that which repeats solely preoccupied in welding the same to the same intellect turns away from the vision of time it dislikes what is fluid and solidifies everything it touches we do not think real time but we live it because life transcends intellect the feeling we have of our evolution and of the evolution of all things in pure duration is there forming around the intellectual concept properly so called an indistinct fringe that fades off into darkness mechanism and finalism agree in taking account only of the bright nucleus shining in the centre they forget that this nucleus has been formed out of the rest by condensation and that the whole must be used the fluid as well as and more than the condensed in order to grasp the inner movement of life indeed if the fringe exists however delicate and indistinct it should have more importance for philosophy than the bright nucleus it surrounds for it is its presence that enables us to affirm that the nucleus is a nucleus that pure intellect is a contraction by condensation of a more extensive power 
and just because this vague intuition is of no help in directing our action on things which action takes place exclusively on the surface of reality we may presume that it is to be exercised not merely on the surface but below as soon as we go out of the encasings in which radical mechanism and radical finalism confine our thought reality appears as a ceaseless upspringing of something new which has no sooner arisen to make the present than it has already fallen back into the past at this exact moment it falls under the glance of the intellect whose eyes are ever turned to the rear this is already the case with our inner life for each of our acts we shall easily find antecedents of which it may in some sort be said to be the mechanical resultant and it may equally well be said that each action is the realization of an intention in this sense mechanism is everywhere and finality everywhere in the evolution of our conduct but if our action be one that involves the whole of our person and is truly ours it could not have been foreseen even though its antecedents explain it when once it has been accomplished and though it be the realizing of an intention it differs as a present and new reality from the intention which can never aim at anything but recommencing or rearranging the past mechanism and finalism are therefore here only external views of our conduct they extract its intellectuality but our conduct slips between them and extends much further once again this does not mean that free action is capricious unreasonable action to behave according to caprice is to oscillate mechanically between two or more ready-made alternatives and at length to settle on one of them it is no real maturing of an internal state no real evolution it is merely however paradoxical the assertion may seem bending the will to imitate the mechanism of the intellect a conduct that is truly our own on the contrary is that of a will which does not try to counterfeit intellect and which remaining itself that is to say evolving ripens gradually into acts which the intellect will be able to resolve indefinitely into intelligible elements without ever reaching its goal the free act is incommensurable with the idea and its rationality must be defined by this very incommensurability which admits the discovery of as much intelligibility within it as we will such is the character of our own evolution and such also without doubt that of the evolution of life our reason incorrigibly presumptuous imagines itself possessed by right of birth or by right of conquest innate or acquired of all the essential elements of the knowledge of truth even where it confesses that it does not know the object presented to it it believes that its ignorance consists only in not knowing which one of its time-honoured categories suits the new object in what drawer ready to open shall we put it in what garment already cut out shall we clothe it is it this or that or the other thing and this and that and the other thing are always something already conceived already known the idea that for a new object we might have to create a new concept perhaps a new method of thinking is deeply repugnant to us the history of philosophy is there however and shows us the eternal conflict of systems the impossibility of satisfactorily getting the real into the ready-made garments of our ready-made concepts the necessity of making to measure but rather than go to this extremity our reason prefers to announce once for all with a proud modesty that it has to do only with the relative and that the absolute is not in its province this preliminary declaration enables it to apply its habitual method of thought without any scruple and thus under pretence that it does not touch the absolute to make absolute judgments upon everything plato was the first to set up the theory that to know the real consists in finding its idea that is to say in forcing it into a pre-existing frame already at our disposal 
as if we implicitly possessed universal knowledge but this belief is natural to the human intellect always engaged as it is in determining under what former heading it shall catalogue any new object and it may be said that in a certain sense we are all born platonists nowhere is the inadequacy of this method so obvious as in theories of life if in evolving in the direction of the vertebrates in general of man and intellect in particular life has had to abandon by the way many elements incompatible with this particular mode of organization and consign them as we shall show to other lines of development it is the totality of these elements that we must find again and rejoin to the intellect proper in order to grasp the true nature of vital activity and we shall probably be aided in this by the fringe of vague intuition that surrounds our distinct that is intellectual representation for what can this useless fringe be if not that part of the evolving principle which has not shrunk to the peculiar form of our organization but has settled around it unasked for unwanted it is there accordingly that we must look for hints to expand the intellectual form of our thought from there shall we derive the impetus necessary to lift us above ourselves to form an idea of the whole of life cannot consist in combining simple ideas that have been left behind in us by life itself in the course of its evolution how could the part be equivalent to the whole the content to the container a by-product of the vital operation to the operation itself such however is our illusion when we define the evolution of life as a passage from the homogeneous to the heterogeneous or by any other concept obtained by putting fragments of intellect side by side we place ourselves in one of the points where evolution comes to a head the principal one no doubt but not the only one and there we do not even take all we find for of the intellect we keep only one or two of the concepts by which it expresses itself and it is this part of a part that we declare representative of the whole of something indeed which goes beyond the concrete whole i mean of the evolution movement of which this whole is only the present stage the truth is that to represent this the entire intellect would not be too much nay it would not be enough it would be necessary to add to it what we find in every other terminal point of evolution and these diverse and divergent elements must be considered as so many extracts which are or at least which were in their humblest form mutually complementary only then might we have an inkling of the real nature of the evolution movement and even then we should fail to grasp it completely for we should still be dealing only with the evolved which is a result and not with evolution itself which is the act by which the result is obtained such is the philosophy of life to which we are leading up it claims to transcend both mechanism and finalism but as we announced at the beginning it is nearer the second doctrine than the first it will not be amiss to dwell on this point and show more precisely how far this philosophy of life resembles finalism and wherein it is different like radical finalism although in a vaguer form our philosophy represents the organized world as a harmonious whole but this harmony is far from being as perfect as it has been claimed to be it admits of much discord because each species each individual even retains only a certain impetus from the universal vital impulsion and tends to use this energy in its own interest in this consists adaptation the species and the individual thus think only of themselves whence arises a possible conflict with other forms of life harmony therefore does not exist in fact it exists rather in principle i mean that the original impetus is a common impetus and the higher we ascend the stream of life the more do diverse tendencies appear complementary to each other thus the wind at a street corner divides into diverging currents which are all one and the same gust 
harmony or rather complementarity is revealed only in the mass in tendencies rather than in states especially and this is the point on which finalism has been most seriously mistaken harmony is rather behind us than before it is due to an identity of impulsion and not to a common aspiration it would be futile to try to assign to life an end in the human sense of the word to speak of an end is to think of a pre-existing model which is only to be realized it is to suppose therefore that all is given and that the future can be read in the present it is to believe that life in its movement and in its entirety goes to work like our intellect which is only a motionless and fragmentary view of life and which naturally takes its stand outside of time life on the contrary progresses and endures in time of course when once the road has been travelled we can glance over it mark its direction note this in psychological terms and speak as if there had been pursuit of an end thus shall we speak ourselves but of the road which was going to be travelled the human mind could have nothing to say for the road has been created pari passu with the act of travelling over it being nothing but the direction of this act itself at every instant then evolution must admit of a psychological interpretation which is from our point of view the best interpretation but this explanation has neither value nor even significance except retrospectively never could the finalistic interpretation such as we shall propose it be taken for an anticipation of the future it is a particular mode of viewing the past in the light of the present in short the classic conception of finality postulates at once too much and too little it is both too wide and too narrow in explaining life by intellect it limits too much the meaning of life intellect such at least as we find it in ourselves has been fashioned by evolution during the course of progress it is cut out of something larger or rather it is only the projection necessarily on a plane of a reality that possesses both relief and depth it is this more comprehensive reality that true finalism ought to reconstruct or rather if possible embrace in one view but on the other hand just because it goes beyond intellect the faculty of connecting the same with the same of perceiving and also of producing repetitions this reality is undoubtedly creative that is productive of effects in which it expands and transcends its own being these effects were therefore not given in it in advance and so it could not take them for ends although when once produced they admit of a rational interpretation like that of the manufactured article that has reproduced a model in short the theory of final causes does not go far enough when it confines itself to ascribing some intelligence to nature and it goes too far when it supposes a pre-existence of the future in the present in the form of idea and the second theory which sins by excess is the outcome of the first which sins by defect in place of intellect proper must be substituted the more comprehensive reality of which intellect is only the contraction the future then appears as expanding the present it was not therefore contained in the present in the form of a represented end and yet once realized it will explain the present as much as the present explains it and even more it must be viewed as an end as much as and more than a result our intellect has a right to consider the future abstractly from its habitual point of view being itself an abstract view of the cause of its own being it is true that the cause may then seem beyond our grasp already the finalist theory of life eludes all precise verification what if we go beyond it in one of its directions here in fact after a necessary digression we are back at the question which we regard as essential can the insufficiency of mechanism be proved by facts we said that if this demonstration is possible it is on condition of frankly accepting the evolutionist hypothesis 
we must now show that if mechanism is insufficient to account for evolution the way of proving this insufficiency is not to stop at the classic conception of finality still less to contract or attenuate it but on the contrary to go further let us indicate at once the principle of our demonstration we said of life that from its origin it is the continuation of one and the same impetus divided into divergent lines of evolution something has grown something has developed by a series of additions which have been so many creations this very development has brought about a dissociation of tendencies which were unable to grow beyond a certain point without becoming mutually incompatible strictly speaking there is nothing to prevent our imagining that the evolution of life might have taken place in one single individual by means of a series of transformations spread over thousands of ages or instead of a single individual any number might be supposed succeeding each other in a unilinear series in both cases evolution would have had so to speak one dimension only but evolution has actually taken place through millions of individuals on divergent lines each ending at a crossing from which new paths radiate and so on indefinitely if our hypothesis is justified if the essential causes working along these diverse roads are of psychological nature they must keep something in common in spite of the divergence of their effects as schoolfellows long separated keep the same memories of boyhood roads may fork or byways be opened along which dissociated elements may evolve in an independent manner but nevertheless it is in virtue of the primitive impetus of the whole that the movement of the parts continues something of the whole therefore must abide in the parts and this common element will be evident to us in some way perhaps by the presence of identical organs in very different organisms suppose for an instant that the mechanistic explanation is the true one evolution must then have occurred through a series of accidents added to one another each new accident being preserved by selection if it is advantageous to that sum of former advantageous accidents which the present form of the living being represents what likelihood is there that by two entirely different series of accidents being added together two entirely different evolutions will arrive at similar results the more two lines of evolution diverge the less probability is there that accidental outer influences or accidental inner variations bring about the construction of the same apparatus upon them especially if there was no trace of this apparatus at the moment of divergence but such similarity of the two products would be natural on the contrary on a hypothesis like ours even in the latest channel there would be something of the impulsion received at the source pure mechanism then would be refutable and finality in the special sense in which we understand it would be demonstrable in a certain aspect if it could be proved that life may manufacture the like apparatus by unlike means on divergent lines of evolution and the strength of the proof would be proportional both to the divergency between the lines of evolution thus chosen and to the complexity of the similar structures found in them it will be said that resemblance of structure is due to sameness of the general conditions in which life has evolved and that these permanent outer conditions may have imposed the same direction on the forces constructing this or that apparatus in spite of the diversity of transient outer influences and accidental inner changes we are not of course blind to the role which the concept of adaptation plays in the science of today biologists certainly do not all make the same use of it some think the outer conditions capable of causing change in organisms in a direct manner in a definite direction through physico-chemical alterations induced by them in the living substance such is the hypothesis of eimer for example others more faithful to the spirit of darwinism believe the influence of conditions works indirectly only 
through favouring in the struggle for life those representatives of a species which the chance of birth has best adapted to the environment in other words some attribute a positive influence to outer conditions and say that they actually give rise to variations while the others say that these conditions have only a negative influence and merely eliminate variations but in both cases the outer conditions are supposed to bring about a precise adjustment of the organism to its circumstances both parties then will attempt to explain mechanically by adaptation to similar conditions the similarities of structure which we think are the strongest argument against mechanism so we must at once indicate in a general way before passing to the detail why explanations from adaptation seem to us insufficient let us first remark that of the two hypotheses just described the latter is the only one which is not equivocal the darwinian idea of adaptation by automatic elimination of the unadapted is a simple and clear idea but just because it attributes to the outer cause which controls evolution a merely negative influence it has great difficulty in accounting for the progressive and so to say rectilinear development of complex apparatus such as we are about to examine how much greater will this difficulty be in the case of the similar structure of two extremely complex organs on two entirely different lines of evolution an accidental variation however minute implies the working of a great number of small physical and chemical causes an accumulation of accidental variations such as would be necessary to produce a complex structure requires therefore the concurrence of an almost infinite number of infinitesimal causes why should these causes entirely accidental recur the same and in the same order at different points of space and time no one will hold that this is the case and the darwinian himself will probably merely maintain that identical effects may arise from different causes that more than one road leads to the same spot but let us not be fooled by a metaphor the place reached does not give the form of the road that leads there while an organic structure is just the accumulation of those small differences which evolution has had to go through in order to achieve it the struggle for life and natural selection can be of no use to us in solving this part of the problem for we are not concerned here with what has perished we have to do only with what has survived now we see that identical structures have been formed on independent lines of evolution by a gradual accumulation of effects how can accidental causes occurring in an accidental order be supposed to have repeatedly come to the same result the causes being infinitely numerous and the effect infinitely complicated the principle of mechanism is that the same causes produce the same effects this principle of course does not always imply that the same effects must have the same causes but it does involve this consequence in the particular case in which the causes remain visible in the effect that they produce and are indeed its constitutive elements that two walkers starting from different points and wandering at random should finally meet is no great wonder but that throughout their walk they should describe two identical curves exactly superposable on each other is altogether unlikely the improbability will be the greater the more complicated the routes and it will become impossibility if the zigzags are infinitely complicated now what is this complexity of zigzags as compared with that of an organ in which thousands of different cells each being itself a kind of organism are arranged in a definite order let us turn then to the other hypothesis and see how it would solve the problem adaptation it says is not merely elimination of the unadapted it is due to the positive influence of outer conditions that have molded the organism on their own form this time similarity of effects will be explained by similarity of cause we shall remain apparently in pure mechanism 
but if we look closely we shall see that the explanation is merely verbal that we are again the dupes of words and that the trick of the solution consists in taking the term adaptation in two entirely different senses at the same time if i pour into the same glass by turns water and wine the two liquids will take the same form and the sameness in form will be due to the sameness in adaptation of content to container adaptation here really means mechanical adjustment the reason is that the form to which the matter has adapted itself was there ready-made and has forced its own shape on the matter but in the adaptation of an organism to the circumstances it has to live in where is the pre-existing form awaiting its matter the circumstances are not a mould into which life is inserted and whose form life adopts this is indeed to be fooled by a metaphor there is no form yet and the life must create a form for itself suited to the circumstances which are made for it it will have to make the best of these circumstances neutralize their inconveniences and utilize their advantages in short respond to outer actions by building up a machine which has no resemblance to them such adapting is not repeating but replying an entirely different thing if there is still adaptation it will be in the sense in which one may say of the solution of a problem of geometry for example that it is adapted to the conditions i grant indeed that adaptation so understood explains why different evolutionary processes result in similar forms the same problem of course calls for the same solution but it is necessary then to introduce as for the solution of a problem of geometry an intelligent activity or at least a cause which behaves in the same way this is to bring in finality again and a finality this time more than ever charged with anthropomorphic elements in a word if the adaptation is passive if it is mere repetition in the relief of what the conditions give in the mould it will build up nothing that one tries to make it build and if it is active capable of responding by a calculated solution to the problem which is set out in the conditions that is going further than we do too far indeed in our opinion in the direction we indicated in the beginning but the truth is that there is a surreptitious passing from one of these two meanings to the other a flight for refuge to the first whenever one is about to be caught in flagrante delicto of finalism by employing the second it is really the second which serves the usual practice of science but it is the first that generally provides its philosophy in any particular case one talks as if the process of adaptation were an effort of the organism to build up a machine capable of turning external circumstances to the best possible account then one speaks of adaptation in general as if it were the very impress of circumstances passively received by an indifferent matter end of section two section three of evolution creatrice by henri bergson translated by arthur mitchell this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter one part three but let us come to the examples it would be interesting first to institute here a general comparison between plants and animals one cannot fail to be struck with the parallel progress which has been accomplished on both sides in the direction of sexuality not only is fecundation itself the same in higher plants and in animals since it consists in both in the union of two nuclei that differ in their properties and structure before their union and immediately after become equivalent to each other but the preparation of sexual elements goes on in both under like conditions 
it consists essentially in the reduction of the number of chromosomes and the rejection of a certain quantity of chromatic substance yet vegetables and animals have evolved on independent lines favoured by unlike circumstances opposed by unlike obstacles here are two great series which have gone on diverging on either line thousands and thousands of causes have combined to determine the morphological and functional evolution yet these infinitely complicated causes have been consummated in each series in the same effect and this effect could hardly be called a phenomenon of adaptation where is the adaptation where is the pressure of external circumstances there is no striking utility in sexual generation it has been interpreted in the most diverse ways and some very acute inquirers even regard the sexuality of the plant at least as a luxury which nature might have dispensed with but we do not wish to dwell on facts so disputed the ambiguity of the term adaptation and the necessity of transcending both the point of view of mechanical causality and that of anthropomorphic finality will stand out more clearly with simpler examples at all times the doctrine of finality has laid much stress on the marvellous structure of the sense organs in order to liken the work of nature to that of an intelligent workman now since these organs are found in a rudimentary state in the lower animals and since nature offers us many intermediaries between the pigment spot of the simplest organisms and the infinitely complex eye of the vertebrates it may just as well be alleged that the result has been brought about by natural selection perfecting the organ automatically in short if there is a case in which it seems justifiable to invoke adaptation it is this particular one for there may be discussion about the function and meaning of such a thing as sexual generation in so far as it is related to the conditions in which it occurs but the relation of the eye to light is obvious and when we call this relation an adaptation we must know what we mean if then we can show in this privileged case the insufficiency of the principles invoked on both sides our demonstration will at once have reached a high degree of generality let us consider the example on which the advocates of finality have always insisted the structure of such an organ as the human eye they have had no difficulty in showing that in this extremely complicated apparatus all the elements are marvellously coordinated. In order that vision shall operate, says the author of a well-known book on final causes, the sclerotic membrane must become transparent in one point of its surface, so as to enable luminous rays to pierce it. The cornea must correspond exactly with the opening of the socket. Behind this transparent opening there must be refracting media, there must be a retina at the extremity of the dark chamber perpendicular to the retina there must be an innumerable quantity of transparent cones permitting only the light directed in the line of their axes to reach the nervous membrane etc etc in reply the advocate of final causes has been invited to assume the evolutionist hypothesis everything is marvellous indeed if one consider an eye like ours in which thousands of elements are coordinated in a single function but take the function at its origin in the infusorian where it is reduced to the mere impressionability almost purely chemical of a pigment spot to light this function possibly only an accidental fact in the beginning may have brought about a slight complication of the organ which again induced an improvement of the function it may have done this either directly through some unknown mechanism or indirectly merely through the effect of the advantages it brought to the living being and the hold it thus offered to natural selection thus the progressive formation of an eye as well contrived as ours would be explained by an almost infinite number of actions and reactions between the function and the organ without the intervention of other than mechanical causes
the question is hard to decide indeed when put directly between the function and the organ as is done in the doctrine of finality as also mechanism itself does for organ and function are terms of different nature and each conditions the other so closely that it is impossible to say a priori whether in expressing their relation we should begin with the first as does mechanism or with the second as finalism requires but the discussion would take an entirely different turn we think if we began by comparing together two terms of the same nature an organ with an organ instead of an organ with its function in this case it would be possible to proceed little by little to a solution more and more plausible and there would be the more chance of a successful issue the more resolutely we assumed the evolutionist hypothesis let us place side by side the eye of a vertebrate and that of a mollusk such as the common pecten we find the same essential parts in each composed of analogous elements the eye of the pecten presents a retina a cornea a lens of cellular structure like our own there is even that peculiar inversion of retinal elements which is not met with in general in the retina of the invertebrates now the origin of mollusks may be a debated question but whatever opinion we hold all are agreed that mollusks and vertebrates separated from their common parent stem long before the appearance of an eye so complex as that of the pecten whence then the structural analogy let us question on this point the two opposed systems of evolutionist explanation in turn the hypothesis of purely accidental variations and that of a variation directed in a definite way under the influence of external conditions the first as is well known is presented today in two quite different forms darwin spoke of very slight variations being accumulated by natural selection he was not ignorant of the facts of sudden variation but he thought these sports as he called them were only monstrosities incapable of perpetuating themselves and he accounted for the genesis of species by an accumulation of insensible variations such is still the opinion of many naturalists it is tending however to give way to the opposite idea that a new species comes into being all at once by the simultaneous appearance of several new characters all somewhat different from the previous ones this latter hypothesis already proposed by various authors notably by bateson in a remarkable book has become deeply significant and acquired great force since the striking experiments of hugo de vries this botanist working on the inothera lamarckiana obtained at the end of a few generations a certain number of new species the theory he deduces from his experiments is of the highest interest species pass through alternate periods of stability and transformation when the period of mutability occurs unexpected forms spring forth in a great number of different directions we will not attempt to take sides between this hypothesis and that of insensible variations indeed perhaps both are partly true we wish merely to point out that if the variations invoked are accidental they do not whether small or great account for a similarity of structure such as we have cited let us assume to begin with the darwinian theory of insensible variations and suppose the occurrence of small differences due to chance and continually accumulating it must not be forgotten that all the parts of an organism are necessarily coordinated whether the function be the effect of the organ or its cause it matters little one point is certain the organ will be of no use and will not give selection a whole unless it functions however the minute structure of the retina may develop and however complicated it may become such progress instead of favoring vision will probably hinder it if the visual centers do not develop at the same time as well as several parts of the visual organ itself if the variations are accidental 
how can they ever agree to arise in every part of the organ at the same time in such way that the organ will continue to perform its function darwin quite understood this it is one of the reasons why he regarded variation as insensible for a difference which arises accidentally at one point of the visual apparatus if it be very slight will not hinder the functioning of the organ and hence this first accidental variation can in a sense wait for complementary variations to accumulate and raise vision to a higher degree of perfection granted but while the insensible variation does not hinder the functioning of the eye neither does it help it so long as the variations that are complementary do not occur how in that case can the variation be retained by natural selection unwittingly one will reason as if the slight variation were a toothing stone set up by the organism and reserved for a later construction this hypothesis so little conformable to the darwinian principle is difficult enough to avoid even in the case of an organ which has been developed along one single main line of evolution for example the vertebrate eye but it is absolutely forced upon us when we observe the likeness of structure of the vertebrate eye and that of the mollusks how could the same small variations incalculable in number have ever occurred in the same order on two independent lines of evolution if they were purely accidental and how could they have been preserved by selection and accumulated in both cases the same in the same order when each of them taken separately was of no use let us turn then to the hypothesis of sudden variations and see whether it will solve the problem it certainly lessens the difficulty on one point but it makes it much worse on the other if the eye of the mollusk and that of the vertebrate have both been raised to their present form by a relatively small number of sudden leaps i have less difficulty in understanding the resemblance of the two organs than if this resemblance were due to an incalculable number of infinitesimal resemblances acquired successively in both cases it is chance that operates but in the second case chance is not required to work the miracle it would have to perform in the first not only is the number of resemblances to be added somewhat reduced but i can also understand better how each could be preserved and added to the others for the elementary variation is now considerable enough to be an advantage to the living being and so to lend itself to the play of selection but here there arises another problem no less formidable namely how do all the parts of the visual apparatus suddenly changed remain so well coordinated that the eye continues to exercise its function for the change of one part alone will make vision impossible unless this change is absolutely infinitesimal the parts must then all change at once each consulting the others i agree that a great number of uncoordinated variations may indeed have arisen in less fortunate individuals that natural selection may have eliminated these and that only the combination fit to endure capable of preserving and improving vision has survived still this combination had to be produced and supposing chance to have granted this favour once can we admit that it repeats the self-same favour in the course of the history of a species so as to give rise every time all at once to new complications marvellously regulated with reference to each other and so related to former complications as to go further on in the same direction how especially can we suppose that by a series of mere accidents these sudden variations occur the same in the same order involving in each case a perfect harmony of elements more and more numerous and complex along two independent lines of evolution the law of correlation will be invoked of course darwin himself appealed to it it will be alleged that a change is not localized in a single point of the organism but has its necessary recoil on other points the examples cited by darwin remain classic white cats with blue eyes are generally deaf hairless dogs have imperfect dentition etc 
granted but let us not play now on the word correlation a collective whole of solidary changes is one thing a system of complementary changes changes so coordinated as to keep up and even improve the functioning of an organ under more complicated conditions is another that an anomaly of the pilus system should be accompanied by an anomaly of dentition is quite conceivable without our having to call for a special principle of explanation for hair and teeth are similar formations and the same chemical change of the germ that hinders the formation of hair would probably obstruct that of teeth it may be for the same sort of reason that white cats with blue eyes are deaf in these different examples the correlative changes are only solidary changes not to mention the fact that they are really lesions namely diminutions or suppressions and not additions which makes a great difference but when we speak of correlative changes occurring suddenly in the different parts of the eye we use the word in an entirely new sense this time there is a whole set of changes not only simultaneous not only bound together by community of origin but so coordinated that the organ keeps on performing the same simple function and even performs it better that a change in the germ which influences the formation of the retina may affect at the same time also the formation of the cornea the iris the lens the visual centres etc i admit if necessary although they are formations that differ much more from one another in their original nature than do probably hair and teeth but that all these simultaneous changes should occur in such a way as to improve or even merely maintain vision this is what in the hypothesis of sudden variation i cannot admit unless a mysterious principle is to come in whose duty it is to watch over the interest of the function but this would be to give up the idea of accidental variation in reality these two senses of the word correlation are often interchanged in the mind of the biologist just like the two senses of the word adaptation and the confusion is almost legitimate in botany that science in which the theory of the formation of species by sudden variation rests on the firmest experimental basis in vegetables function is far less narrowly bound to form than in animals even profound morphological differences such as a change in the form of leaves have no appreciable influence on the exercise of function and so do not require a whole system of complementary changes for the plant to remain fit to survive but it is not so in the animal especially in the case of an organ like the eye a very complex structure and very delicate function here it is impossible to identify changes that are simply solidary with changes which are also complementary the two senses of the word correlation must be carefully distinguished it would be a downright paralogism to adopt one of them in the premises of the reasoning and the other in the conclusion and this is just what is done when the principle of correlation is invoked in explanations of detail in order to account for complementary variations and then correlation in general is spoken of as if it were any group of variations provoked by any variation of the germ thus the notion of correlation is first used in current science as it might be used by an advocate of finality it is understood that this is only a convenient way of expressing oneself that one will correct it and fall back on pure mechanism when explaining the nature of the principles and turning from science to philosophy and one does then come back to pure mechanism but only by giving a new meaning to the word correlation a meaning which would now make correlation inapplicable to the detail it is called upon to explain to sum up if the accidental variations that bring about evolution are insensible variations some good genius must be appealed to the genius of the future species in order to preserve and accumulate these variations for selection will not look after this 
if on the other hand the accidental variations are sudden then for the previous function to go on or for a new function to take its place all the changes that have happened together must be complementary so we have to fall back on the good genius again this time to obtain the convergence of simultaneous changes as before to be assured of the continuity of direction of successive variations but in neither case can parallel development of the same complex structures on independent lines of evolution be due to a mere accumulation of accidental variations so we come to the second of the two great hypotheses we have to examine suppose the variations are due not to accidental and inner causes but to the direct influence of outer circumstances let us see what line we should have to take on this hypothesis to account for the resemblance of eye structure in two series that are independent of each other from the phylogenetic point of view though mollusks and vertebrates have evolved separately both have remained exposed to the influence of light and light is a physical cause bringing forth certain definite effects acting in a continuous way it has been able to produce a continuous variation in a constant direction of course it is unlikely that the eye of the vertebrate and that of the mollusk have been built up by a series of variations due to simple chance admitting even that light enters into the case as an instrument of selection in order to allow only useful variations to persist there is no possibility that the play of chance even thus supervised from without should bring about in both cases the same juxtaposition of elements coordinated in the same way but it would be different supposing that light acted directly on the organized matter so as to change its structure and somehow adapt this structure to its own form the resemblance of the two effects would then be explained by the identity of the cause the more and more complex eye would be something like the deeper and deeper imprint of light on a matter which being organized possesses a special aptitude for receiving it but can an organic structure be likened to an imprint we have already called attention to the ambiguity of the term adaptation the gradual complication of a form which is being better and better adapted to the mould of outward circumstances is one thing the increasingly complex structure of an instrument which derives more and more advantage from these circumstances is another in the former case the matter merely receives an imprint in the second it reacts positively it solves a problem obviously it is this second sense of the word adapt that is used when one says that the eye has become better and better adapted to the influence of light but one passes more or less unconsciously from this sense to the other and a purely mechanistic biology will strive to make the passive adaptation of an inert matter which submits to the influence of its environment mean the same as the active adaptation of an organism which derives from this influence an advantage it can appropriate it must be owned indeed that nature herself appears to invite our mind to confuse these two types of adaptation for she usually begins by a passive adaptation where later on she will build up a mechanism for active response thus in the case before us it is unquestionable that the first rudiment of the eye is found in the pigment spot of the lower organisms this spot may indeed have been produced physically by the mere action of light and there are a great number of intermediaries between the simple spot of pigment and a complicated eye like that of the vertebrates but from the fact that we pass from one thing to another by degrees it does not follow that the two things are of the same nature from the fact that an orator falls in at first with the passions of his audience in order to make himself master of them it will not be concluded that to follow is the same as to lead now living matter seems to have no other means of turning circumstances to good account than by adapting itself to them passively at the outset where it has to direct a movement it begins by adopting it life proceeds by insinuation 
the intermediate degrees between a pigment spot and an eye are nothing to the point however numerous the degrees there will still be the same interval between the pigment spot and the eye as between a photograph and a photographic apparatus certainly the photograph has been gradually turned into a photographic apparatus but could light alone a physical force ever have provoked this change and converted an impression left by it into a machine capable of using it it may be claimed that considerations of utility are out of place here that the eye is not made to see but that we see because we have eyes that the organ is what it is and utility is a word by which we designate the functional effects of the structure but when i say that the eye makes use of light i do not merely mean that the eye is capable of seeing i allude to the very precise relations that exist between this organism and the apparatus of locomotion the retina of vertebrates is prolonged in an optic nerve which again is continued by cerebral centres connected with motor mechanisms our eye makes use of light in that it enables us to utilize by movements of reaction the objects that we see to be advantageous and to avoid those which we see to be injurious now of course as light may have produced a pigment spot by physical means so it can physically determine the movements of certain organisms ciliated infusoria for instance react to light but no one would hold that the influence of light has physically caused the formation of a nervous system of a muscular system of an osseous system all things which are continuous with the apparatus of vision in vertebrate animals the truth is when one speaks of the gradual formation of the eye and still more when one takes into account all that is inseparably connected with it one brings in something entirely different from the direct action of light one implicitly attributes to organized matter a certain capacity sui generis the mysterious power of building up very complicated machines to utilize the simple excitation that it undergoes but this is just what is claimed to be unnecessary physics and chemistry are said to give us the key to everything Imer's great work is instructive in this respect it is well known what persevering effort this biologist has devoted to demonstrating that transformation is brought about by the influence of the external on the internal continuously exerted in the same direction and not as darwin held by accidental variations his theory rests on observations of the highest interest of which the starting point was the study of the course followed by the color variation of the skin in certain lizards before this the already old experiments of dorfmeister had shown that the same chrysalis according as it was submitted to cold or heat gave rise to very different butterflies which had long been regarded as independent species vanessa levana and vanessa prosa an intermediate temperature produces an intermediate form we might class with these facts the important transformations observed in a little crustacean artemia salina when the salt of the water it lives in is increased or diminished in these various experiments the external agent seems to act as a cause of transformation but what does the word cause mean here without undertaking an exhaustive analysis of the idea of causality we will merely remark that three very different meanings of this term are commonly confused a cause may act by impelling releasing or unwinding the billiard ball that strikes another determines its movement by impelling the spark that explodes the powder acts by releasing the gradual relaxing of the spring that makes the phonograph turn unwinds the melody inscribed on the cylinder if the melody which is played be the effect and the relaxing of the spring the cause we must say that the cause acts by unwinding what distinguishes these three cases from each other is the greater or less solidarity between the cause and the effect in the first the quantity and quality of the effect vary with the quantity and quality of the cause 
in the second neither quality nor quantity of the effect varies with quality and quantity of the cause the effect is invariable in the third the quantity of the effect depends on the quantity of the cause but the cause does not influence the quality of the effect the longer the cylinder turns by the action of the spring the more of the melody i shall hear but the nature of the melody or of the part heard does not depend on the action of the spring only in the first case really does cause explain effect in the others the effect is more or less given in advance and the antecedent invoked is in different degrees of course its occasion rather than its cause now in saying that the saltness of the water is the cause of the transformations of artemia or that the degree of temperature determines the colour and marks of the wings which a certain chrysalis will assume on becoming a butterfly is the word cause used in the first sense obviously not causality has here an intermediary sense between those of unwinding and releasing such indeed seems to be imer's own meaning when he speaks of the kaleidoscopic character of the variation or when he says that the variation of organized matter works in a definite way just as inorganic matter crystallizes in definite directions and it may be granted perhaps that the process is a merely physical and chemical one in the case of the color changes of the skin but if this sort of explanation is extended to the case of the gradual formation of the eye of the vertebrate for instance it must be supposed that the physico-chemistry of living bodies is such that the influence of light has caused the organism to construct a progressive series of visual apparatus all extremely complex yet all capable of seeing and of seeing better and better what more could the most confirmed finalist say in order to mark out so exceptional a physico-chemistry and will not the position of a mechanistic philosophy become still more difficult when it is pointed out to it that the egg of a mollusk cannot have the same chemical composition as that of a vertebrate that the organic substance which evolved towards the first of these two forms could not have been chemically identical with that of the substance which went in the other direction and that nevertheless under the influence of light the same organ has been constructed in the one case as in the other the more we reflect upon it the more we shall see that this production of the same effect by two different accumulations of an enormous number of small causes is contrary to the principles of mechanistic philosophy we have concentrated the full force of our discussion upon an example drawn from phylogenesis but ontogenesis would have furnished us with facts no less cogent every moment right before our eyes nature arrives at identical results in sometimes neighbouring species by entirely different embryogenic processes observations of heteroblastia have multiplied in late years and it has been necessary to reject the almost classical theory of the specificity of embryonic gills still keeping to our comparison between the eye of the vertebrates and that of mollusks we may point out that the retina of the vertebrate is produced by an expansion in the rudimentary brain of the young embryo it is a regular nervous centre which has moved toward the periphery in the mollusk on the contrary the retina is derived from the ectoderm directly and not indirectly by means of the embryonic encephalon quite different therefore are the evolutionary processes which lead in man and in the pecten to the development of a like retina but without going so far as to compare two organisms so distant from each other we might reach the same conclusion simply by looking at certain very curious facts of regeneration in one and the same organism if the crystalline lens of a triton be removed it is regenerated by the iris now the original lens was built out of the ectoderm while the iris is of mesodermic origin what is more in the salamandra maculata if the lens be removed and the iris left 
the regeneration of the lens takes place at the upper part of the iris but if this upper part of the iris itself be taken away the regeneration takes place in the inner or retinal layer of the remaining region thus parts differently situated differently constituted meant normally for different functions are capable of performing the same duties and even of manufacturing when necessary the same pieces of the machine here we have indeed the same effect obtained by different combinations of causes whether we will or no we must appeal to some inner directing principle in order to account for this convergence of effects such convergence does not appear possible in the darwinian and especially the neo-darwinian theory of insensible accidental variations nor in the hypothesis of sudden accidental variations nor even in the theory that assigns definite directions to the evolution of the various organs by a kind of mechanical composition of the external with the internal forces so we come to the only one of the present forms of evolution which remains for us to mention namely neo-lamarckism end of section three section four of evolution creatrice by henri bergson translated by arthur mitchell this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter one part four it is well known that lamarck attributed to the living being the power of varying by use or disuse of its organs and also of passing on the variation so acquired to its descendants a certain number of biologists hold a doctrine of this kind today the variation that results in a new species is not they believe merely an accidental variation inherent in the germ itself nor is it governed by a determinism sui generis which develops definite characters in a definite direction apart from every consideration of utility it springs from the very effort of the living being to adapt itself to the circumstances of its existence the effort may indeed be only the mechanical exercise of certain organs mechanically elicited by the pressure of external circumstances but it may also imply consciousness and will and it is in this sense that it appears to be understood by one of the most eminent representatives of the doctrine the american naturalist cope neo-lamarckism is therefore of all the later forms of evolutionism the only one capable of admitting an internal and psychological principle of development although it is not bound to do so and it is also the only evolutionism that seems to us to account for the building up of identical complex organs on independent lines of development for it is quite conceivable that the same effort to turn the same circumstances to good account might have the same result especially if the problem put by the circumstances is such as to admit of only one solution but the question remains whether the term effort must not then be taken in a deeper sense a sense even more psychological than any neo-lamarckian supposes for a mere variation of size is one thing and a change of form is another that an organ can be strengthened and grow by exercise nobody will deny but it is a long way from that to the progressive development of an eye like that of the mollusks and of the vertebrates if this development be ascribed to the influence of light long continued but passively received we fall back on the theory we have just criticized if on the other hand an internal activity is appealed to then it must be something quite different from what we usually call an effort for never has an effort been known to produce the slightest complication of an organ and yet an enormous number of complications all admirably coordinated have been necessary to pass from the pigment spot of the infusorian to the eye of the vertebrate but even if we accept this notion of the evolutionary process in the case of animals 
how can we apply it to plants here variations of form do not seem to imply nor always to lead to functional changes and even if the cause of the variation is of a psychological nature we can hardly call it an effort unless we give a very unusual extension to the meaning of the word the truth is it is necessary to dig beneath the effort itself and look for a deeper cause this is especially necessary we believe if we wish to get at a cause of regular hereditary variations we are not going to enter here into the controversies over the transmissibility of acquired characters still less do we wish to take too definite a side on this question which is not within our province but we cannot remain completely indifferent to it nowhere is it clear that philosophers can not today content themselves with vague generalities but must follow the scientists in experimental detail and to discuss the results with them if spencer had begun by putting to himself the question of the hereditability of acquired characters his evolutionism would no doubt have taken an altogether different form if as seems probable to us a habit contracted by the individual transmitted to its descendants only in very exceptional cases all the spencerian psychology would need remaking and a large part of spencer's philosophy would fall to pieces let us say then how the problem seems to us to present itself and in what direction an attempt might be made to solve it after having been affirmed as a dogma the transmissibility of acquired characters has been no less dogmatically denied for reasons drawn a priori from the supposed nature of germinal cells it is well known how weismann was led by his hypothesis of the continuity of the germplasm to regard the germinal cells ova and spermatozoa as almost independent of the somatic cells starting from this it has been claimed and is still claimed by many that the hereditary transmission of an acquired character is inconceivable but if perchance experiment should show that acquired characters are transmissible it would prove thereby that the germplasm is not so independent of the somatic envelope as has been contended and the transmissibility of acquired characters would become ipso facto conceivable which amounts to saying that conceivability and inconceivability have nothing to do with the case and that experience alone must settle the matter but it is just here that the difficulty begins the acquired characters we are speaking of are generally habits or the effects of habit and at the root of most habits there is a natural disposition so that one can always ask whether it is really the habit acquired by the soma of the individual that is transmitted or whether it is not rather a natural aptitude which existed prior to the habit this aptitude would have remained inherent in the germplasm which the individual bears within him as it was in the individual himself and consequently in the germ whence he sprang thus for instance there is no proof that the mole has become blind because it has formed the habit of living underground it is perhaps because its eyes were becoming atrophied that it condemned itself to a life underground if this is the case the tendency to lose the power of vision has been transmitted from germ to germ without anything being acquired or lost by the soma of the mole itself from the fact that the son of a fencing-master has become a good fencer much more quickly than his father we cannot infer that the habit of the parent has been transmitted to the child for certain natural dispositions in course of growth may have passed from the plasma engendering the father to the plasma engendering the son may have grown on the way by the effect of the primitive impetus and thus assured to the son a greater suppleness than the father had without troubling so to speak about what the father did so of many examples drawn from the progressive domestication of animals it is hard to say whether it is the acquired habit that is transmitted or only a certain natural tendency 
that indeed which has caused such and such a particular species or certain of its representatives to be specially chosen for domestication the truth is when every doubtful case every fact open to more than one interpretation has been eliminated there remains hardly a single unquestionable example of acquired and transmitted peculiarities beyond the famous experiments of brown secao repeated and confirmed by other physiologists by cutting the spinal cord or the sciatic nerve of guinea pigs brown secao brought about an epileptic state which was transmitted to the descendants lesions of the same sciatic nerve of the restiform body etc provoked various troubles in the guinea pig which its progeny inherited sometimes in a quite different form exophthalmia loss of toes etc but it is not demonstrated that in these different cases of hereditary transmission there had been a real influence of the soma of the animal on its germplasm weissmann at once objected that the operations of brown secart might have introduced certain special microbes into the body of the guinea pig which had found their means of nutrition in the nervous tissues and transmitted the malady by penetrating into the sexual elements this objection has been answered by brown secart himself but a more plausible one might be raised some experiments of voisin and perron have shown that fits of epilepsy are followed by the elimination of a toxic body which when injected into animals is capable of producing convulsive symptoms perhaps the trophic disorders following the nerve lesions made by brown secart correspond to the formation of precisely this convulsion causing poison if so the toxin passed from the guinea pig to its spermatozoan or ovum and caused in the development of the embryo a general disturbance which however had no visible effects except at one point or another of the organism when developed in that case what occurred would have been somewhat the same as in the experiments of charin delamare and moussou where guinea pigs in gestation whose liver or kidney was injured transmitted the lesion to their progeny simply because the injury to the mother's organ had given rise to specific cytotoxins which acted on the corresponding organ of the fetus it is true that in these experiments as in a former observation of the same physiologists it was the already formed fetus that was influenced by the toxins but other researches of charin have resulted in showing that the same effect may be produced by an analogous process on the spermatozoa and the ova to conclude then the inheritance of an acquired peculiarity in the experiments of brown secart can be explained by the effect of a toxin on the germ the lesion however well localized it seems is transmitted by the same process as for instance the taint of alcoholism but may it not be the same in the case of every acquired peculiarity that has become hereditary there is indeed one point on which both those who affirm and those who deny the transmissibility of acquired characters are agreed namely that certain influences such as that of alcohol can affect at the same time both the living being and the germplasm it contains in such case there is inheritance of a defect and the result is as if the soma of the parent had acted on the germplasm although in reality soma and plasma have simply both suffered the action of the same cause now suppose that the soma can influence the germplasm as those believe who hold that acquired characters are transmissible is not the most natural hypothesis to suppose that things happen in this second case as in the first and that the direct effect of the influence of the soma is a general alteration of the germplasm if this is the case it is by exception and in some sort by accident that the modification of the descendant is the same as that of the parent it is like the hereditability of the alcoholic taint it passes from father to children but it may take a different form in each child and in none of them be like what it was in the father let the letter c represent the change in the plasm 
c being either positive or negative that is to say showing either the gain or loss of certain substances the effect will not be an exact reproduction of the cause nor will the change in the germplasm provoked by a certain modification of a certain part of the soma determine a similar modification of the corresponding part of the new organism in process of formation unless all the other nascent parts of this organism enjoy a kind of immunity as regards c the same part will then undergo alteration in the new organism because it happens that the development of this part is alone subject to the new influence and even then the part might be altered in an entirely different way from that in which the corresponding part was altered in the generating organism we should propose then to introduce a distinction between the hereditability of deviation and that of character an individual which acquires a new character thereby deviates from the form it previously had which form the germs or often are the half germs it contains would have reproduced in their development if this modification does not involve the production of substances capable of changing the germplasm or does not so affect nutrition as to deprive the germplasm of certain of its elements it will have no effect on the offspring of the individual this is probably the case as a rule if on the contrary it has some effect this is likely to be due to a chemical change which is induced in the germplasm this chemical change might by exception bring about the original modification again in the organism which the germ is about to develop but there are as many and more chances that it will do something else in this latter case the generated organism will perhaps deviate from the normal type as much as the generating organism but it will do so differently it will have inherited deviation and not character in general therefore the habits formed by an individual have probably no echo in its offspring and when they have the modification in the descendants may have no visible likeness to the original one such at least is the hypothesis which seems to us most likely in any case in default of proof to the contrary and so long as the decisive experiments called for by an eminent biologist have not been made we must keep to the actual results of observation now even if we take the most favorable view of the theory of the transmissibility of acquired characters and assume that the ostensible acquired character is not in most cases the more or less tardy development of an innate character facts show us that hereditary transmission is the exception and not the rule how then shall we expect it to develop an organ such as the eye when we think of the enormous number of variations all in the same direction that we must suppose to be accumulated before the passage from the pigment spot of the infusorian to the eye of the mollusk and of the vertebrate is possible we do not see how heredity as we observe it could ever have determined this piling up of differences even supposing that individual efforts could have produced each of them singly that is to say that neo-lamarckism is no more able than any other form of evolutionism to solve the problem in thus submitting the various present forms of evolutionism to a common test in showing that they all strike against the same insurmountable difficulty we have in no wise the intention of rejecting them altogether on the contrary each of them being supported by a considerable number of facts must be true in its way each of them must correspond to a certain aspect of the process of evolution perhaps even it is necessary that a theory should restrict itself exclusively to a particular point of view in order to remain scientific that is to give a precise direction to researchers into detail but the reality of which each of these theories takes a partial view must transcend them all and this reality is the special object of philosophy which is not constrained to scientific precision because it contemplates no practical application 
let us therefore indicate in a word or two the positive contribution that each of the three present forms of evolutionism seems to us to make toward the solution of the problem what each of them leaves out and on what point this threefold effort should in our opinion converge in order to obtain a more comprehensive although thereby of necessity a less definite idea of the evolutionary process the neo-darwinians are probably right we believe when they teach that the essential causes of variation are the differences inherent in the germ borne by the individual and not the experiences or behavior of the individual in the course of his career where we fail to follow these biologists is in regarding the differences inherent in the germ as purely accidental and individual we cannot help believing that these differences are the development of an impulsion which passes from germ to germ across the individuals that they are therefore not pure accidents and that they might well appear at the same time in the same form in all the representatives of the same species or at least in a certain number of them already in fact the theory of mutations is modifying darwinism profoundly on this point it asserts that at a given moment after a long period the entire species is beset with a tendency to change the tendency to change therefore is not accidental true the change itself would be accidental since the mutation works according to de Vries, in different directions in the different representatives of the species but first we must see if the theory is confirmed by many other vegetable species de Vries has verified it only by the inothera lamarckiana and then there is the possibility as we shall explain further on that the part played by chance is much greater in the variation of plants than in that of animals because in the vegetable world function does not depend so strictly on form be that as it may the neo-darwinians are inclined to admit that the periods of mutation are determinate the direction of the mutation may therefore be so as well at least in animals and to the extent we shall have to indicate we thus arrive at a hypothesis like Eimer's, according to which the variations of different characters continue from generation to generation in definite directions this hypothesis seems plausible to us within the limits in which Eimer himself retains it of course the evolution of the organic world cannot be predetermined as a whole we claim on the contrary that the spontaneity of life is manifested by a continual creation of new forms succeeding others but this indetermination cannot be complete it must leave a certain part to determination an organ like the eye for example must have been formed by just a continual changing in a definite direction indeed we do not see how otherwise to explain the likeness of structure of the eye in species that have not the same history where we differ from Eimer is in his claim that combinations of physical and chemical causes are enough to secure the result we have tried to prove on the contrary by the example of the eye that if there is orthogenesis here a psychological cause intervenes certain neo-lamarckians do indeed resort to a cause of a psychological nature there to our thinking is one of the most solid positions of neo-lamarckism but if this cause is nothing but the conscious effort of the individual it cannot operate in more than a restricted number of cases at most in the animal world and not at all in the vegetable kingdom even in animals it will act only on points which are under the direct or indirect control of the will and even where it does act it is not clear how it could compass a change so profound as an increase of complexity at most this would be conceivable if the acquired characters were regularly transmitted so as to be added together but this transmission seems to be the exception rather than the rule 
a hereditary change in a definite direction which continues to accumulate and add to itself so as to build up a more and more complex machine must certainly be related to some sort of effort but to an effort of far greater depth than the individual effort far more independent of circumstances an effort common to most representatives of the same species inherent in the germs they bear rather than in their substance alone an effort thereby assured of being passed on to their descendants so we come back by a somewhat roundabout way to the idea we started from that of an original impetus of life passing from one generation of germs to the following generation of germs through the developed organisms which bridge the interval between the generations this impetus sustained right along the lines of evolution among which it gets divided is the fundamental cause of variations at least of those that are regularly passed on that accumulate and create new species in general when species have begun to diverge from a common stock they accentuate their divergence as they progress in their evolution yet in certain definite points they may evolve identically in fact they must do so if the hypothesis of a common impetus be accepted this is just what we shall have to show now in a more precise way by the same example we have chosen the formation of the eye in mollusks and vertebrates the idea of an original impetus moreover will thus be made clearer two points are equally striking in an organ like the eye the complexity of its structure and the simplicity of its function the eye is composed of distinct parts such as the sclerotic the cornea the retina the crystalline lens etc in each of these parts the detail is infinite the retina alone comprises three layers of nervous elements multipolar cells bipolar cells visual cells each of which has its individuality and is undoubtedly a very complicated organism so complicated indeed is the retinal membrane in its intimate structure that no simple description can give an adequate idea of it the mechanism of the eye is in short composed of an infinity of mechanisms all of extreme complexity yet vision is one simple fact as soon as the eye opens the visual act is effected just because the act is simple the slightest negligence on the part of nature in the building of the infinitely complex machine would have made vision impossible this contrast between the complexity of the organ and the unity of the function is what gives us pause a mechanistic theory is one which means to show us the gradual building up of the machine under the influence of external circumstances intervening either directly by action on the tissues or indirectly by the selection of better adapted ones but whatever form this theory may take supposing it avails at all to explain the detail of the parts it throws no light on their correlation then comes the doctrine of finality which says that the parts have been brought together on a preconceived plan with a view to a certain end in this it likens the labour of nature to that of the workman who also proceeds by the assemblage of parts with a view to the realization of an idea or the imitation of a model mechanism here reproaches finalism with its anthropomorphic character and rightly but it fails to see that itself proceeds according to this method somewhat mutilated true it has got rid of the end pursued or the ideal model but it also holds that nature has worked like a human being by bringing parts together while a mere glance at the development of an embryo shows that life goes to work in a very different way life does not proceed by the association and addition of elements but by dissociation and division we must get beyond both points of view both mechanism and finalism being at bottom only standpoints to which the human mind has been led by considering the work of man 
but in what direction can we go beyond them we have said that in analyzing the structure of an organ we can go on decomposing forever although the function of the whole is a simple thing this contrast between the infinite complexity of the organ and the extreme simplicity of the function is what should open our eyes in general when the same object appears in one aspect and in another as infinitely complex the two aspects have by no means the same importance or rather the same degree of reality in such cases the simplicity belongs to the object itself and the infinite complexity to the views we take in turning around it to the symbols by which our senses or intellect represent it to us or more generally to elements of a different order with which we try to imitate it artificially but with which it remains incommensurable being of a different nature an artist of genius has painted a figure on his canvas we can imitate his picture with many colored squares of mosaic and we shall reproduce the curves and shades of the model so much the better as our squares are smaller more numerous and more varied in tone but an infinity of elements infinitely small presenting an infinity of shades would be necessary to obtain the exact equivalent of the figure that the artist has conceived as a simple thing which he has wished to transport as a whole to the canvas and which is the more complete the more it strikes us as the projection of an indivisible intuition now suppose our eyes so made that they cannot help seeing in the work of the master a mosaic effect or suppose our intellect so made that it cannot explain the appearance of the figure on the canvas except as a work of mosaic we should then be able to speak simply of a collection of little squares and we should be under the mechanistic hypothesis we might add that beside the materiality of the collection there must be a plan on which the artist worked and then we should be expressing ourselves as finalists but in neither case should we have got at the real process for there are no squares brought together it is the picture that is the simple act projected on the canvas which by the mere fact of entering into our perception is decomposed before our eyes into thousands and thousands of little squares which present as recomposed a wonderful arrangement so the eye with its marvelous complexity of structure may be only the simple act of vision divided for us into a mosaic of cells whose order seems marvelous to us because we have conceived the whole as an assemblage if i raise my hand from a to b this movement appears to me under two aspects at once felt from within it is a simple indivisible act perceived from without it is the course of a certain curve a b in this curve i can distinguish as many positions as i please and the line itself might be defined as a certain mutual coordination of these positions but the positions infinite in number and the order in which they are connected have sprung automatically from the indivisible act by which my hand has gone from a to b mechanism here would consist in seeing only the positions finalism would take their order into account but both mechanism and finalism would leave on one side the movement which is reality itself in one sense the movement is more than the positions and than their order for it is sufficient to make it in its indivisible simplicity to secure that the infinity of the successive positions as also their order be given at once with something else which is neither order nor position but which is essential the mobility but in another sense the movement is less than the series of positions and their connecting order for to arrange points in a certain order it is necessary first to conceive the order and then to realize it with points there must be the work of assemblage and there must be intelligence whereas the simple movement of the hand contains nothing of either it is not intelligent in the human sense of the word and it is not an assemblage for it is not made up of elements 
just so with the relation of the eye to vision there is in vision more than the component cells of the eye and their mutual coordination in this sense neither mechanism nor finalism go far enough but in another sense mechanism and finalism both go too far for they attribute to nature the most formidable of the labours of hercules in holding that she has exalted to the simple act of vision an infinity of infinitely complex elements whereas nature has had no more trouble in making an eye than i have in lifting my hand nature's simple act has divided itself automatically into an infinity of elements which are then found to be coordinated to one idea just as the movement of my hand has dropped an infinity of points which are then found to satisfy one equation we find it very hard to see things in that light because we cannot help conceiving organization as manufacturing but it is one thing to manufacture and quite another to organize manufacturing is peculiar to man it consists in assembling parts of matter which we have cut out in such manner that we can fit them together and obtain from them a common action the parts are arranged so to speak around the action as an ideal centre to manufacture therefore is to work from the periphery to the centre or as the philosophers say from the many to the one organization on the contrary works from the centre to the periphery it begins in a point that is almost a mathematical point and spreads around this point by concentric waves which go on enlarging the work of manufacturing is the more effective the greater the quantity of matter dealt with it proceeds by concentration and compression the organizing act on the contrary has something explosive about it it needs at the beginning the smallest possible place the minimum of matter as if the organizing forces only entered space reluctantly the spermatozoon which sets in motion the evolutionary process of the embryonic life is one of the smallest cells of the organism and it is only a small part of the spermatozoon which really takes part in the operation but these are only superficial differences digging beneath them we think a deeper difference would be found a manufactured thing delineates exactly the form of the work of manufacturing it i mean that the manufacturer finds in his product exactly what he has put into it if he is going to make a machine he cuts out its pieces one by one and then puts them together the machine when made will show both the pieces and their assemblage the whole of the result represents the whole of the work and to each part of the work corresponds a part of the result now i recognize that positive science can and should proceed as if organization was like making a machine only so will it have any hold on organized bodies for its object is not to show us the essence of things but to furnish us with the best means of acting on them physics and chemistry are well advanced sciences and living matter lends itself to our action only so far as we can treat it by the processes of our physics and chemistry organization can therefore only be studied scientifically if the organized body has first been likened to a machine the cells will be the pieces of the machine the organism their assemblage and the elementary labors which have organized the parts will be regarded as the real elements of the labor which has organized the whole this is the standpoint of science quite different in our opinion is that of philosophy for us the whole of an organized machine may strictly speaking represent the whole of the organizing work this is however only approximately true yet the parts of the machine do not correspond to parts of the work because the materiality of this machine does not represent a sum of means employed but a sum of obstacles avoided it is a negation rather than a positive reality so as we have shown in a former study vision is a power which should attain by right an infinity of things inaccessible to our eyes but such a vision would not be continued into action 
it might suit a phantom but not a living being the vision of a living being is an effective vision limited to objects on which the being can act it is a vision that is canalized and the visual apparatus simply symbolizes the work of canalizing therefore the creation of the visual apparatus is no more explained by the assembling of its anatomic elements than the digging of a canal could be explained by the heaping up of the earth which might have formed its banks a mechanistic theory would maintain that the earth had been brought cartload by cartload finalism would add that it had not been dumped down at random that the carters had followed a plan but both theories would be mistaken for the canal has been made in another way with greater precision we may compare the process by which nature constructs an eye to the simple act by which we raise the hand but we supposed at first that the hand met with no resistance let us now imagine that instead of moving in air the hand has to pass through iron filings which are compressed and offer resistance to it in proportion as it goes forward at a certain moment the hand will have exhausted its effort and at this very moment the filings will be massed and coordinated in a certain definite form to wit that of the hand that is stopped and of a part of the arm now suppose that the hand and arm are invisible lookers-on will seek the reason of the arrangement in the filings themselves and in forces within the mass some will account for the position of each filing by the action exerted upon it by the neighbouring filings these are the mechanists others will prefer to think that a plan of the whole has presided over the detail of these elementary actions they are the finalists but the truth is that there has been merely one indivisible act that of the hand passing through the filings the inexhaustible detail of the movement of the grains as well as the order of their final arrangement expresses negatively in a way this undivided movement being the unitary form of a resistance and not a synthesis of positive elementary actions for this reason if the arrangement of the grains is termed an effect and the movement of the hand a cause it may indeed be said that the whole of the effect is explained by the whole of the cause but to parts of the cause parts of the effect will in no wise correspond in other words neither mechanism nor finalism will here be in place and we must resort to an explanation of a different kind now in the hypothesis we propose the relation of vision to the visual apparatus would be very nearly that of the hand to the iron filings that follow canalize and limit its motion the greater the effort of the hand the farther it will go into the filings but at whatever point it stops instantaneously and automatically the filings coordinate and find their equilibrium so with vision and its organ according as the undivided act constituting vision advances more or less the materiality of the organ is made of a more or less considerable number of mutually coordinated elements but the order is necessarily complete and perfect it could not be partial because once again the real process which gives rise to it has no parts that is what neither mechanism nor finalism takes into account and it is what we also fail to consider when we wonder at the marvellous structure of an instrument such as the eye at the bottom of our wondering is always this idea that it would have been possible for a part only of this coordination to have been realized that the complete realization is a kind of special favor this favor the finalists consider as dispensed to them all at once by the final cause the mechanists claim to obtain it little by little by the effect of natural selection but both see something positive in this coordination and consequently something fractionable everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In its cause, something which admits of every possible degree of achievement. In reality, the cause, though more or less intense, cannot produce its effect except in one piece, and completely finished. According as it goes further and further in the direction of vision, it gives the simple pigmentary masses of a lower organism, or the rudimentary eye of a serpula, or the slightly differentiated eye of the alciope, or the marvellously perfected eye of the bird. But all these organs, unequal as is their complexity, necessarily present an equal coordination. For this reason, no matter how distant two animal species may be from each other, if the progress toward vision has gone equally far in both, there is the same visual organ in each case, for the form of the organ only expresses the degree in which the exercise of the function has been obtained. But, in speaking of a progress toward vision, are we not coming back to the old notion of finality? It would be so, undoubtedly, if this progress required the conscious or unconscious idea of an end to be attained but it is really effected in virtue of the original impetus of life it is implied in this movement itself and that is just why it is found in independent lines of evolution if now we are asked why and how it is implied therein we reply that life is more than anything else a tendency to act on inert matter the direction of this action is not predetermined hence the unforeseeable variety of forms which life in evolving sows along its path but this action always presents, to some extent, the character of contingency. It implies at least a rudiment of choice. Now, a choice involves the anticipatory idea of several possible actions. Possibilities of action must therefore be marked out for the living being before the action itself. Visual perception is nothing else. The visible outlines of bodies are the design of our eventual action on them. Vision will be found, therefore, in different degrees in the most diverse animals, and it will appear in the same complexity of structure wherever it has reached the same degree of intensity. We have dwelt on these resemblances of structure in general, and on the example of the eye in particular, because we had to define our attitude toward mechanism on the one hand and finalism on the other. It remains for us to describe it more precisely in itself. This we shall now do by showing the divergent results of evolution, not as presenting analogies, but as themselves mutually complementary. End of section 4